The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod, and we are webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. It's already been a very exciting day today, and it's going to continue to be an exciting day. Before we go any further, if you're watching the show right now, I have to let you know, I, I said a little bit last Thursday that we might possibly, fingers crossed, have a special guest today, and it's happening. Uh, we're going to extend the show by a half an hour today, so if you're watching and and, you know, we're close to the two-hour mark, and you're thinking, okay, I'm leaving. Don't. Because for the first time today, we are going to have Temple Grandin with us live answering your questions. So we're extending the show a half an hour because that's when we're able to have her. She is right now in Indianapolis at the Autism Society of America conference. She just delivered her keynote speech, and I already have goosies because I, I heard that it was just, it brought the house down. It was amazing. And she's going to join us for half an hour to answer your questions. So we didn't find this out until about a half an hour ago. So I don't have any pre-questions from before. It's all what you guys want me to ask right now, right here. I'm going to take questions for the next two hours. We've got a half an hour with her live. We've had her on the show many times before. I've had the opportunity to interview her, but we have never had her on live. So this is very exciting. Big day here. I, I, you know, I'm excited about it, but I, I have to say I'm thrilled for you guys because this is going to give you an opportunity that we haven't been able to provide before. And if you haven't been able to see her uh, talk, this is, this is a great opportunity and you can have a question answered. So send it, send it now. All right. Uh, which brings me to my next point. This entire show is meant to be interactive for moments like this, right? And all the other moments. And by the way, we have a big show before Temple joins us. So uh, stay tuned because you're going to want to hear about all that. But I want to remind you the show is interactive and it really is only as good as you guys make it. So participate with us. Emily's going to show you some of the different ways that you can participate and that you can be watching the show. So I'll remind you that our homepage is autism live.com. That's one of the ways to watch the show. When you go there, you will see a desktop, a lovely desktop. Uh, if you click on the triangle that is on the computer screen, you can be watching the live show or the most recently recorded live show. And if you go up, there's a playlist icon in the corner of the screen that you can click to cycle back through other shows. 
Today, though, you're not going to want to go anywhere else because we have such a bang up show. Now, to the side of that computer screen, there are a couple of different boxes that are there. Put your cursor in the one that says your question, start typing, hit enter, and it will appear here on my screen. There is about a two minute lag. So do not wait until Temple is here with us live to send your question and send them in before. Uh, I'm going to be scanning them and picking out the questions to ask her during the break. So keep them coming in as soon as possible. Uh, and it's free, by the way, to ask those questions. There is no login. Nobody's asking for your personal information. There's no need to talk about credit cards at all because it, it, we're not involved in that, right? We just want you to have a direct line to get your questions answered. So uh, send that into us as soon as possible. By the way, if you need us to get back to you about something in particular, let's say you need information about a study, please include your email email information or some other way to get in touch with you so that we can do that. That process takes a little bit of time, so I will beg your patience, um, but we will eventually get that all. I'm a little behind at the moment, but I'm working on that list. So in any case, participate with us. It really, I got to be honest with you, it's, the, it's my favorite part of the show when you guys participate with us. It really is. So don't think like you're bugging us. You're not. We love it when you participate. Okay. But you can also uh, talk to us through Twitter. We're going to be um, hanging out on Twitter a little bit today, uh, seeing what you guys are tweeting to us. You can talk to us on Facebook and there are, you can email us as well as Emily just showed you in the many things that flashed by you. And we'll take an opportunity later on in the show. We'll take uh, maybe on every hour, we'll show you all those things to, so that you can keep processing them. All right. Uh, I always like to remind you at the start of the show that we'll have many different experts on the show, but I won't be one of them because I'm not an expert in the field of autism. I'm just not. I, you know, aspire to be one day, but I'll let you know when that happens. If it ever does, it's not going to happen. Because uh, every time I think I know about autism, my son informs me of something that I don't know. And it humbles me and I go, see, there it is. I'm not an expert in this, but I am a student and I love being a student because I'm a former teacher. And I believe firmly that all good teachers have a passion for learning. And I certainly have a passion for learning about autism because my child was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. He's now 11 and bless his heart. He is amazing and doing so well. Just the light of my life. And no kidding. And I get emotional about it because, uh, that wouldn't have happened had I not gotten good information. And as I always remind you, I got that information because I was lucky and because other people shared and I listened, you know, those three things together. So I want to help you to be lucky. I want to help you by bringing people in who can share with you. And I know you've got the listening part under control, but I will tell you too, that it's incumbent upon all of us. Once we get information to share, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, share what I got so that I can pay that forward. And I'll ask you to do the same thing that whether it's sharing the information that you find here and sharing clips from the show that have helped you or some other way that you decide to share information with the people coming behind you. This is the way we hold hands together and we get this done together because honestly, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. I like to believe that it takes the world where our kids are concerned. We have to all be in this together. So I hold hands with you. You hold hands with me and we'll make progress. And by the way, you know, I, I know I have a special 
interest in talking to the parents because I really have an appreciation for some of the things that you're going through, although all of our journeys are different. We're all in this big spectrum and everybody's different. But I want you to know, I also have a special appreciation for the teachers uh, because without them, we're not going to be able to achieve what we need to achieve. And for the practitioners who are working so hard to be able to help us. And of course, those of you who are on the autism spectrum who teach us every day, who help us to get our perspective taking under control. So all of you together, we make a beautiful community and I welcome all of you. All right. We like to start every morning with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. Yes, the jargon du jour. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym, and we try to figure out just exactly what are they talking about when they say these things. And we give you the actual definition first, mainly because I like to make fun of the actual definitions because they really don't help those of us who don't have degrees in autism and psychology and ABA, right? Uh, to understand how this really affects us on a daily basis. So then we, we, you know, we give that to you in the hopes that we can A, make some fun of it and B, start to learn what these things mean. But then we give you a working definition to see if we can't really jump in and get an understanding of why this term is important to us, right? Because ultimately that's the thing, it is important. Okay, so we start with uh, our term today, which is very, very important. You ready? Chaining. Ah, and I immediately start thinking of those paper chains that we used to make as kids. Hang on to that visual because it actually is gonna help us to understand what this means. Uh, and I also think about, uh, is it, uh, I, I'm trying to think who does the song Ch Changes, right? Which is kind of like changing because what we're doing is we're changing behavior when we're chaining. Okay, but it's one of the worst actual definitions and it's long. You ready? Here we go, actual definition. I know, did you just look at those words and go, what? Turns me off immediately. Okay, chaining, a procedure for teaching behavior chains, where initially the teacher completes all steps in the chain except for the first or last step, which is completed by the child. Forward chaining involves completing the first step. Backward chaining involves starting with completion of the last step. The child receives reinforcement once the chain is completed. When the child shows competence in completing the first or last step in the chain, the teacher performs all but the mastered step and the next step in the chain and so on until the child is completing the entire behavior chain independently. Okay, you know, and the reason why I feel that that's one of the worst, because it does it's not crazy with all these words that we've never heard of before. It's more insidious than that. It has a bunch of words that we're very familiar with, but they're put in a context that unless you already know what mastering a step is in autism, you really aren't going to be able to understand this. Um, so let's move on to our working definition and see if we can shed a little light here. Our working definition, chaining, a procedure for teaching a behavior sequence where the child masters one step at a time while the teacher completes the remaining unknown steps until the child has mastered all the steps in the chain is, and is completing the whole sequence independently. Okay, let's take the example of teaching a child how to put on a shirt by themselves. Now, this is a perfect example of a series of behaviors because the rest of us sort of take this for granted, that at some point a child is going to be able to take a shirt and they're going to put it on and they're going to stick their arms through the sleeves and we go on with our day and it seems like it's no big deal, right? Except if you don't know how to put on a shirt, 
it's a very big deal and it messes up your day and it's something that gets in the way of all the other progress. So this is a very important, independent, adaptive skill to be able to have. And when you stop to think about all the different things that you have to be able to do to put on a shirt, it's a little mind boggling how we take this for granted. Um, if you are familiar with the skills program, I love because what they've done with a lot of activities like this is that they have made a task analysis for you that lists all of the different steps of putting on a t-shirt because my head doesn't work that way I don't know about you and when you look at the task analysis and skills for putting on a shirt they talk about laying the shirt out on a surface and then taking your hands and and scrunching up to the net well I wouldn't have thought of that I would not have thought of that step to do, right? It just wouldn't have entered my head. So taking and scrunching up, so that's one part of the task. Then being able to take that scrunched up part, put it over your neck. Then you gotta figure out where the front of the shirt is. So you have to turn it so that the shirt is front and probably holding onto it with one side, taking the other arm, maybe holding onto the bottom, taking one arm and putting it up through uh, the, the armhole and then holding while you put the other arm up through the, hall, the armhole and then pulling down over the belly. It's a lot of steps and it can be overwhelming to an individual who's on the autism spectrum. By the way, it can be overwhelming to anyone who doesn't just sometimes organically people just pick it up and they just do it and that's fine. But what do we do as parents and as teachers and as practitioners when someone doesn't automatically get it? Well, so many times we have to break it down into little that paper chain that we were talking about. We're going to break down this skill into all the little paper chains segments. It's the task analysis. And what we do is we take one aspect of it and we say this is the part that we're going to teach right now and that's the only part that we're going to teach we're not going to overwhelm this individual with having the expectation that they're going to get the whole thing we're only going to teach this part and when they get that part we're going to reward them and reward them and reward them until they can do it beautifully and perfectly and this portion of the task is not a problem for them then we're going to move on to another part of the skill and put those two things together. And when they can do those, we're going to reward them. That's chaining. Now, the thing about forward chaining is you take the first part of the skill and you teach that. So if we were going to teach the T-shirt thing to a child and we decided to do forward chaining, we would pick the first part is laying the T-shirt out on the bed or the couch or the whatever and just smoothing it out so that we can see the T-shirt. And that's all we ask the individual to do. And we're going to talk through the other parts of it. We go, good job. They get the reward for laying it out. And we're going to say, oh, now I'm going to scrunch it up and we're going to make it as fun as possible as we're showing. I'm going to put it over your head and I'm going to do this. Oh, and we're tickling or whatever the child or the individual finds reinforcing while we're doing it, right? But we have no expectation that they have to do it. We're not holding them accountable for it. We're not worried about that with them. We're going to do the rest of that part for it. But once the child is able to lay the T-shirt out and we've given reinforcement, we see that they can do it. And they can do it with mom, they can do it with dad, they can do it with teacher, they can do it with grandma, they can do it in the morning, they can do it at the night. They're able to do that. That's mastery, that they're able to do it almost all of the time. Then we're going to say to them, okay, so now you lucky you get to do the scrunching up part and we can find all different exciting ways to show them how to do the scrunching up part but now we say oh remember we're going to lay the shirt out and now you scrunch it up yay and we're going to reinforce that that 
might take longer, that skill, because it's got some fine motor things involved in it, right? And maybe they're not going to do it perfectly the first time, but we talked about rewarding things and, and you know, figuring out when to reward. So in the beginning, we're going to reward that approximation, the attempt, right? So we keep them interested in doing it. And we're going to keep doing that and not worry about them putting it over their head until they've got that together. When we've got those first two chains, then we're going to add the third chain. Now, it may be that you know that this child has a phobia of things around their neck and you're thinking, oh, you know, three things in on this task analysis, we're going to get to that neck thing and it's going to be dicey. I think I'd rather go from the end. You absolutely can. And so instead of going from laying out the shirt, you go from pulling the shirt over the belly. So you do absolutely everything else and you get the shirt right there and you go, pull it down over your belly. I can see your belly, pull it down or whatever will motivate the child. And you reward that and you work backwards. So, and think about all of the tasks that you want to teach a child uh, and, and that involve all these things, like brushing teeth and tying shoes and, oh my goodness, proper toileting and washing your hands. And um, But it isn't just adaptive skills, too. There are so many different things. Putting together your backpack is something that you can change. Getting out of the car in the carpool is something that you can change. It I'll tell you what chaining does. It takes the pressure off. Take just a second and think about something complicated that you need to, to do. I had to put together some paperwork this week and I'll tell you, it just about sank my battleship and I decided to chunk it. Take it in small increments because it was so overwhelming and I didn't think I could do it. And I said, it was so massive. And I said, okay, here's where I, I'm just going to deal with this right now. I'm just going to deal with this and I'm going to reward myself when I get that done. And you know, before long, I had the whole thing done. So we can do this in teaching anything. Chaining is absolutely uh, such an exciting way to teach something. Later on, we'll talk about fluency once we've gotten all the chains together so that somebody can do it with the speed that they need to do it. But chaining, a really powerful thing. So when you're there and they're talking about, we want to teach this new skill, how are we going to do it? We're going to do forward chaining. Now you know, now you know, this is a very exciting thing. Okay, we always like to start off the day with a question for you. Uh, today's no different. If we'd had more time, we would have asked you, what do you want to know from Temple? So really, we have two questions for you today. Um, but our, our question for you right now is, what would you like to know about autism? Which really, you know, we could ask Temple. Uh, but what would you like to know about autism? What area are you most interested in getting more information about? We're putting together the schedule for the fall. And so I, I want to know from you guys, what do you want to know more about? Is, do you have more questions about biomedical? Do you have more questions about kids who are a little bit older and how we're getting jobs for them? Are you concerned? about uh, with all the things that have happened with insurance, how you find the funding to get through the copay and, and all of that. What is of most interest to you? Please let us know because as I said, I'm shaping the fall as we speak. Okay, we always have a topic for you for the entire week. This entire week, we've been sort of dropping in on the Autism Society of America's conference and talking to them with some of their speakers. We're going to be doing that again today with two amazing individuals. So our topic this week 
week is talking about autism now. I, I said at the beginning of the week that we can take time and look at all the things that we don't have on board, because heaven knows that's a long conversation and you and I could exhaust ourselves. We could fall asleep talking, talking about all the things that haven't been done for autism. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's a lot of exciting things happening, a lot of potential. There are thing, more things at our disposal right now for autism and appreciating autism and helping people to overcome the disabling aspects of autism and utilize the, the really enlightening parts of autism. There are more things having to do with that right now than ever before. And we can capitalize on that and we should. Uh, we, what's not there is always available to us. We can, and we can moan about that as much as you'd like and I'm happy to do that with you anytime. But let's also spend some time talking about what's here now. I get really excited when I hear some of the things that are happening uh, and some of the brilliant minds who are working on this subject. Just very, very exciting. So today, uh, as part of our regular programmed show for the next two hours, we have real progress with Dr. Adele Nadowski. She's going to be here with us and answering some of the questions that you guys have been writing in this week. We've got some autism news for you and some advocacy that we're going to be asking you to take some action, especially if you're here in the state of California. We're going to update you a little bit about the Medicare situation and what's happening with that. Not necessarily good news, I have to be honest with you. Then in the second hour, we've got some um, remarkable guests. Dr. Jonathan Tarbox is going to be back with us for Science Beat. He's got a bunch of questions that have already come in for him and some earlier this week that he's going to be answering. And then we have a really wonderful guest who's going to join us from the ASA conference, Jason Cherry. He is a professional race car driver and he has a very special interest in autism and he's doing some very important things with his race car uh, driving as an advocate for autism. So we're going to be checking in with him and then right as we would normally be ending the show we are gonna stay on the air today because our very special guest Temple Grandin is gonna be with us so send in your questions now ladies and gentlemen we it's gonna be a, a great day let's fasten our seatbelts and get it started stick with us find out you're having a boy you always think like oh he's gonna play football he's gonna do this and that and then when he's diagnosed all those things get washed away it's like that piece that's always in the back of your mind you know where is he what is he doing is he safe we really didn't know what we were dealing with I wish that they could have directed me a little bit more and provided me some information I was a young mom I didn't know what it was like to raise a boy despite a boy with autism Hundreds of thousands of families are not getting the help they need for their children with autism all around the country. Act Today is determined to bridge the gap. These families really have to go through a lot to get a grant. The application process isn't easy. The records, the diagnosis proof, they're really battling for their kids. So when we can give them a grant, it is so wonderful to see that they succeed in getting that help for their children. Our founder, Dr. Doreen Grampiche, is an amazing woman, and she is one of the world's foremost authority on behavior of children with autism. She's extremely knowledgeable, and she oversees every single grant we give. She is part of that process. 
be, provide important safety supports. Things like fencing, for example. The whole family's living in fear of that child running out into traffic. I recently delivered an iPad to a little boy with some of the apps that are out there for children with autism. Miracles happen. I got the iPad from ACT. From ACT, What yeah. did it say? Can you repeat that, Dustin? I got the iPad from ACT. We have helped so many military families. And when I think of these brave families that are fighting two battles, one to protect our country and one for the right treatment and care for their children, it, it breaks my heart. And I think we have to do more as a nation to help them. There's not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Some people say, oh, he's normal. You don't see the battles that I see every single day. My husband does have to deploy, and when they get on that bus, that might be the last time that my kids ever see them. So I called, and then they informed me that he had received the grant, which was like a blessing from above. I was just like speechless. I just started to cry because, you know, without it, we would, we would have been lost. The AT grant was a total miracle, and without that, they wouldn't be able to receive a service dog, so we're so appreciative of what they've done for us as a family. Recently, ACT Today funded a program for military children with autism in San Diego, the Inclusion Films program, which is run by Joey Travolta, and teaches uh, kids on the autism spectrum literal filmmaking skills. They learn how to make a movie. Everybody? There you go. Got it. Okay. Everything that goes into the process of making a film goes into everyday life. So they're learning life skills, they're learning to collaborate. It was really nice to know how much they were enjoying this camp. And they're with people who are supporting them and are making them feel great about themselves and their differences and their similarities. And I get two kids that are working together and apart and together and apart. So it's an interrelationship as well as a camp and a learning experience. It's so fulfilling when I get letters. One stands out for me, a, a boy who was 14 with Asperger's, and we gave him a grant to go to a drama camp. He wrote to us and said, Dear Act Today, thank you for letting me belong for the first time in my life. These kids are remarkable. You know, we underestimate them. They're so knowledgeable, they're so capable, and we can change the life of a family, which means changing the life of a community. Welcome back to Autism Live. We're so thrilled and so fortunate that we're welcoming back Dr. Adele Nadowski to the show. We're so glad to have you back. We've had we missed you for a couple of weeks, uh, but we call this segment Real Progress with Dr. Adele. She's an amazing, amazing expert in the field of autism, been working with kids on the spectrum, individuals, I should say, because not just kids, for, for quite a while and is brilliant, co-creator of skills and just an amazing, I always uh, like to remind people that I had some time to spend with Dr. Nadowski and quite honestly, she just made me a better parent. And I don't, I don't know any compliment that's higher than that for a parent, right? I'm gonna get all misty, what is with me today? But anyway, so having said all that, she's here, she's answering some of your questions and, and we wanna start, 
Dr. Nadowski, with we've had a lot of people asking us about PRT, pivotal response training. Um, what right. it is? Does it go hand in hand with ABA? When, when, who, when is it good? When should we be using it? So fill us in. Um, tell us what PRT is. All right, so within applied behavior analysis, there's lots of different procedures that we use for teaching skills. Um, everything's based on the principles of learning. And um, one of the more, I guess, um, structured ways that we teach is discrete trial training. And people talk about that and they're used to that, but it's more like um, repeated practice, working on the same things over and over again, providing sometimes arbitrary reinforcers, things like that. So there's this whole other line which is all natural environment type of teaching strategies, and um, PRT is just one of those, pivotal response training. And it was pretty much developed by Lynn and Robert Cagle um, from UCSB in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea behind it and why they call it pivotal is because they are looking at certain areas in which they think you get more bang for your buck. So for example, focusing on things like um, motivation and um, something they call responsivity to multiple cues, which basically means making sure that you're bringing in lots of different stimuli and targets, not always working on the same things. Um, also teaching things that, have to, that lead into self-management as well as self-initiation. And so within PRT, um, they have some core features that they kind of deal with um, that separated a little bit out from the discrete trial methodologies. Um, specifically, it's more of a play-based intervention um, strategy approach. You let the child make a lot more choices. They can actually be involved in choosing what targets they're going to work on, what order they're going to work on things. Um, kids can take the lead a, bit, a little bit more. Um, they also make sure that they're varying up the task. So constantly using different stimuli, different instructions, not always doing things the same way, and interspersing all of those with maintenance tasks as well. Um, sometimes within discrete trial training, one procedure that has been used, it's not necessarily um, a part of what defines discrete trial training, but um, in its early days, they did something called mass trials, which is where they worked on the same thing over and over and over again. So yeah. um, I don't believe necessarily that that's what defines DTT today, right. but um, when PRT came out, that was one of their things that they suggested was that we intersperse this with other things. Um, and then the reinforcers are very natural, so they have to do with what the kids actually care about. And so that's how they're able to make it more play-based and uh, more naturalistic because they kind of let the child take the lead. They see what they're interested in. They contrive situations to get the kids to communicate, and then they give them the items that they wanted uh, to begin with, as opposed to in other strategies where you're not using this type of approach, maybe um, the reinforcer you give has nothing to do with um, the thing you're teaching at the moment. Okay, so my question for you, I think I got spoiled as a parent because I was a card parent. Center for Autism and Related Disorders, was, they were who treated my son. And I got a vast array of all of these things. We had the highest quality ABA, so they did some DTT when it was appropriate. Mm -hmm. They did natural environment training. <clears throat> they did pivotal response training. They did all of these things. Um, and, and my child flourished wonderfully. But we get questions all the time from people about, should I do ABA? ABA or pivotal response training. I'm thinking they should be asking their ABA provider, do you do pivotal response? Yeah, 
the, the problem is, is that, like I said, it's just one of the um, types of naturalistic procedures within the ADA umbrella. Um, the thing is, is it's pretty much been branded, and that's why it's called PRT. And sometimes when you see these brands out there, people get confused. They don't realize they're just a part of applied behavior analysis. They think there's something separate. And in reality, it's just like I said, it's using the principles of learning, but it's using it in more naturalistic ways. Okay. And these guys have basically carved out something for themselves where they've defined specific features, and then they have their brand. The pivotal response training brand. But in reality, naturalistic procedures, they have many different brand names. Okay. They can be called um, incidental teaching, manned model, natural language paradigm. Um, there's lots of these different things, natural environment training. But in reality, a lot of them have very similar features. They might have like their own one little thing that they add on to it here or there and stuff like that. So if, they're, if you're talking about, does my kid need DTT or NET or PRT, don't get too confused over all that. What they need is applied behavior analysis. Good and, quality Yeah, ABA. And yeah. a good quality one doesn't necessarily just only do one of these things. Yeah. And also, it's not completely black or white. It's not like you say, OK, um, my kid is going to get DTT or my kid is going to get NET, and none of, none of the either. So, when you're, when you're doing this, a lot of times um, a very good clinician is actually smart enough to know how to weave in and out of the two. So in some moments, you cannot teach something using a naturalistic procedure. Right. There's just not a way to contrive the situation. Yeah. Um, you can do your best, but not always is it possible. And if you only use naturalistic procedures and you only wait for these opportunities, you don't get enough practice trials. Right. So sometimes, even in the naturalistic setting, you need to step up and do a couple of the thing, you know, trials in a row to get repeated practice. If we're not practicing, if I'm with someone for two hours and I work on something twice, what is the likelihood that they're going to actually get anything out yeah. of it? So someone needs to be flexible enough to move in and out and see how they can incorporate all of this into one very cohesive session. I always visualize it as a toolbox and figuring out which tool do I need for this activity. That, or, or, or even as a, a painters, you know, painters have an array of brushes and which brush do I use at which time. Uh, you would never say I'm going to be a painter and I'm only going to use this with paintbrush. Mm -hmm. You would limit yourself, right? Um, there would be no need to do that. So I, I really hope that people start to begin to understand how vital this, this kind of thing can be in their program, but that it really is part and parcel of good quality ABA. Yes, exactly. So if you are working with an ABA provider and all they're doing is um, one approach, like discrete trials, and that's all they ever do, and especially if they never get to the point where they're generalizing into the natural environment and seeing if the kids can use these in different settings and with different people, that's a huge red flag. Right. So. And, and we need to be talking with our ABA providers about what are you doing when, and we need to begin to understand these terms so that we can be talking intelligently about them. But if you see that one therapist or two therapists on your team are only doing that DTT, and, and many of you have written in and said we're having troubles with generalization, um, you know, have a conversation about are we including this kind of training in the program? Can we play with the percentage? Because maybe there are already doing it, but maybe they need to goose the percentage. Yeah. And also along the opposite um, end of things, if you have someone who's don't, only doing natural environment, and um, like for me, I'll sometimes look at the data and I'll see like, wow, you know, they haven't worked on this thing that's really important in a really long time, or they worked on it and they only did it once or something like that. Yeah. 
this kid is not learning this and then you ask why and then you get an answer like well there were not any opportunities the, the child didn't really you know feel like doing that or something like that or we did do it we we did it you know at nine o'clock or something yeah. you know one time right um, that's also a red flag because a very good therapist is going to contrive situations make them happen uh, it's not technically naturalistic, I guess, in that sense, but it appears naturalistic to right. the child. They don't realize, you know what yeah. I'm saying, that you've set them up, basically. Right. And after that, um, taking a couple of opportunities to do a few trials where you can in a row, not just being like, okay, we got through that one time and now we're done. Right. Opportunity, huge, huge part of think about anything that you would want to be good at. We never want to send somebody to the Olympics having only done something once right? Mm -hmm. Bad, bad plan. Um, so we, we need to give that opportunity to our kids. Okay, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and we're going to have Dr. Nadowski answer some of the questions that you guys have been spending, sending in this week. Stick with us. Welcome back to Smarty. Today we're going to be making homemade glow-in-the-dark bouncy balls. So let's get started. The materials you'll be needing are two mixing bowls, something to stir with, measuring spoons, borax, cornstarch, water, glue, and glow paint and food coloring. So step one, you're going to take one of your measuring bowls and you're going to measure out half a teaspoon of borax, four tablespoons of cornstarch, and four tablespoons of water. Then you're going to mix that all together. I'm going to set this aside. In another bowl, I'm going to mix my glue and my glow-in-the-dark paint and any food coloring I want to use to make it a special color. two separate bowls with the mixtures in them. Now I'm going to put them together, letting them sit for the next 15 seconds, and then I'll stir them together. It's important that you let them sit for a moment before stirring so they can do their magical thing. Now that the 15 seconds is over, I'm going to stir together the mixture, making sure to stir thoroughly until I can no longer do it anymore. You'll see what I mean in a second. Now that I can no longer stir it, I'm going to start rolling around in my hands to make a ball. And voila! Very own homemade bouncy ball. Woo! Well, I hope you had fun with this activity today. Until next time, drop down guys. Can you see me flying by your side? Welcome back to Autism Live. We're here in a segment that we call Real Progress with Dr. Adele. Dr. Adele Nadowski is here with us. She is an expert in the field of autism and has extensive experience working with individuals on the spectrum and was one of the co-creators of Skills, really uh, a brilliant, brilliant mastermind behind Skills. And you know I'm a huge Skills fan. So uh, right now we're having her answer some of the questions that you guys have sent in in the last couple of days. So Dr. Nadowski, our first question for you is when do you you start toilet training a child on the autism spectrum? It's a great, great question. Mm -hmm. It is a really good question and um, there's a lot of variables associated with it. Um, first off, I just want to say um, don't feel rushed um, based on age. Even typically developing kids these days are getting trained a little bit later. Um, 
and there is research to suggest you can do this extremely young. I've read stuff where they've done it with infants, but it almost seems absurd to me because the amount of work that it requires on the part of the parents, especially when you're dealing with a child with a developmental disability, you have so many other things to deal with. So. Um, some things to think about is that in typical child development, they around two to three, they'll learn to pull up their own pants. Um, they can sit down unassisted. You want to make sure your child's able to actually sit. Okay. Um, some, some kids with autism, they're running around. They never sit still. So um, make sure that they have some basic compliance in place. They can sit still for a little bit. Um, they don't necessarily need to know how to wipe themselves and things like that. Um, between around three to four is actually when a lot of times they can start to take care of more of their own toileting needs. Um, and you want to be looking for signs like, is there any interest? Do they kind of notice when you go or other family members go? Do they ever want to just sit in the toilet? Um, and also, like, um, can they hold their bladder? So. If they're the type of child who um, is constantly going in little spurts, like I know um, some kids who do this, they don't necessarily just go, you know, once an hour, every couple hours. Little spurts are coming out all the time. Mm -hmm. um, those kind of kids are going to be extremely difficult, and you may want to wait until they're holding it for longer periods. Um, and also, how do they react when they wet themselves? Do they even notice? Mm -hmm. And I know uh, diapers and pull-ups and things these days are amazing because kids don't even feel that they're wet. Yeah. However, it's a problem when it comes to potty training. Yeah. And some research suggests actually that you need to get kids out of diapers. If they're wearing diapers during the potty training stage, you will not have the success that you will when they're out of the diapers. So if you're ready to go down that route, one of the first things you're going to need to do is get rid of the diapers. Um, but maybe trying out just to see if they're not in diapers and they're in regular underwear and they get wet, do they notice? Yeah. Because some kids, they kind of just go and they keep doing what they're doing and they and don't even change their facial <laughs> expression and right. they don't even move and they're just sitting in wet pants. Yeah. And so if that's the case, there may be very little motivation. Um, so I would say just taking into account all those things, age and um, looking at the bladder, how long they can hold it and how do they react to being wet, different things like that, some of their fine motor skills and going for it when you're ready, but um, I can say even having trained two of my own typically developing kids, um, I was pretty eager with my first child and I started, I think, I wanted to try it at 18 months. Yeah. And um, it was, I used uh, total ABA procedure where basically um, we spent, you know, the entire day in, in the bathroom and we had all sorts of fun things there present and lots of liquids and salty foods to make sure that there were plenty of opportunities and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And um, he just wasn't even getting it. Yeah. Like at the point where he wasn't even attending, he had no clue what was going on. And at one point when he sat down on the toilet and he started to kind of go a little bit, mm -hmm. he got upset yeah. with himself. Um, and it was just a very aversive experience. So we actually postponed it and I waited. Um, I think a year or something from then, and we were more successful. So, it really don't feel urge the yeah. urge to start super young. It's not absolutely necessary. It really is one of those things that I think parents think, oh, I want to get this done as early as possible, and then it's not. You know, it's very doable. I think it, everybody needs to know it's very doable to potty train, even when kids are on the autism spectrum. If you pick your moment correctly and you apply enough of the principles of ABA and these things that are the experts teach, it, you're going to be successful. But you've got to set yourself up for success first. And part of it is setting yourself up for success. And it's a lot of work for a period of a couple of days mm -hmm. at least for the parent. So, you know, making sure that the child is ready, all these things that you talked about, and also being ready 
ready for yourself. Yeah. Um, knowing that you, you can clear your decks for at least a couple of days and there's going to be a period of time, probably at least a couple of weeks where you're going to have to be really, really mindful of, of what's happening and your schedule is going to get a little bit preempted by these kinds of things. Yeah. I think you got to be mentally ready for yeah. it. It's definitely a lot of work. And, uh, the second time around when we tried it, it was done in a day and it was no big deal. Yeah. And all that was, was maturity on the part of even just my child. And also something else is if they have language and, and you can get them to start labeling wet, dry and pee and poop and stuff like that when they even go in their diaper. That's something you can start working on. And I really want to encourage people, take a look at on the A word. Um, they went through the potty training with Jack Riley. And I, I know mom and dad wanted it a little bit earlier than when they did it um, because he was having some frustration. He couldn't tell them when he needed to poo. And he was one of those kids who liked to go underneath the dining room table. You know, sometimes they like to find their spot away from everybody else. Which, which is, is good, actually, because yeah. that's an antecedent that you can recognize and yep. then you can take them straight to the bathroom. But so he would be like in the middle of a program and he'd be trying to get off the chair because he couldn't tell them that he needed to go and then when everything was over, he would go underneath the table and poo and they would go, oh, if he only had the words to tell us that he needed to do that. But ultimately you get to see when they go through the potty training with him and that he is totally ready and how successful they are. It's very inspirational. So that's on the A word. Um, but picking your moment, it's hard to know. After the fact, you go, okay, that was or wasn't the moment. It's hard to know. But I think you gave us really good tips about how to recognize, because uh, I think that's a large portion of it when do we do it? Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to move on to this other question. Hello. My son was diagnosed with ASD at two years old. Since then we have put him in speech therapy and he just started OT two weeks ago. He will be three years old next month. And within a year he had made so much progress since two and a half. He has learned his ABC numbers and shapes. His vocabulary has also improved and can easily identify many object objects, animals, etc. Although his therapy has been so significant in his progress, he is very, attached to me and I have problems in therapy with parent-child separation. He will throw a tantrum and I will have to leave him by force. He does calm down a couple of minutes later, but it's an ongoing problem. Do you have any suggestions in how to break or make easier the child-parent attachment? Because, you know, it's not going to be too long and they're going to be going to either preschool or kindergarten. And this is hard on both fronts. To the, for the child, this is hard for the parent. I'm sure it's hard for the therapist. Uh, in the moment um, and the, you know because there's physical things happening and there's emotional things happening so uh, talk to us Dr. Nadowski about what we do about parent-child attachment and it doesn't tantrums. really say anything in that question at the what the setting is does it where they're at well it's sounding like even in therapy like so but is it at the home or is it in a center I would because guess if both. it was a center I think it's a little easier because you just need to do cold turkey cut yourself off, drop off your child and like remove yourself from the visual, like they can't see you kind right. of thing. You know what I mean? Right. Like say goodbye, there's going to be crying, but you go around the corner, you could still listen or whatever, but you're not present. Your child can't see you anymore. Within a few minutes, the therapist is going to get them engaged and they're going to get over it. Yeah. And that's going to happen again, maybe the next time and even the time after that, and maybe for a couple of weeks, you right. don't, it's hard to know. But um, it, they will eventually be okay with it. It's the problem where when you sometimes hang around and then you give one more kiss and, you know, you yeah. extend it out and things like uh. that. 
that that's going to just prolong it and make it more difficult for both you and um, the child and the therapist. So um, if it's at home, it's a, if it's, it's a different situation, but it's the same thing. When the therapist arrives, you have them take the child at that point and you need to get busy doing something else out of sight basically and it's kind of like a cold turkey thing that just needs to happen but these therapists need to be really fun so yeah make sure that they are prepared and they have great you know um, items that your child's going to be excited about and so they should basically be super excited to see these people not you know freaking out that they still want to be with mom yeah I, and, and but the expectation would be that if we don't feed this fire if we don't give it any attention we don't stay any longer that what we're doing is setting up a circumstance where they have their emotions uh, about it you know of course they'd rather be with you uh, you know that's that's wouldn't every that means you're being great they and they're vocalizing or you know physicalizing that they want to be with you that's their preference okay um, but if they know that they don't have an option of even having 30 more seconds eventually it's gonna die down right yeah I mean and you can give them some sort of a warning signal or whatever it is some kids do really great with that like okay mommy's gonna stay you know, for the count to 10 or something, and that's it. But just something where they know you're going to be leaving and that you're just not going to be coming back. And I, after a while, they're going to, they're not going to be trying anymore. Yeah. It's hard. It's so hard. I, I will be very honest with you that I, this was my biggest fear as a mom that my son was going to do that. I thought when I took him to preschool the first day that he was going to freak out. And there was a kid there who freaked out, and it wasn't my kid. My kid was like, see you later, toots. Um, he was just so thrilled to be there. And I, and I was so, I, you know, I was, I was both mortified that he didn't care and thrilled because I don't know how I would have gotten. I, you know, we used to joke about the fact that I was going to be sitting across the street in the car with binoculars watching him at school um, but he didn't care he was thrilled to be there it was so exciting to him and part of that was that he was there with his favorite therapist was there at preschool with him oh, okay. and he Peter was there with him and and he was thrilled to go and he didn't give a rat's patootie if I was <laughs> on the moon he couldn't have cared less so I do think making it fun um, is is yeah. a big part of it uh, but and then when he went to kindergarten there was a child who every day for six months cried and cried and cried and the mom stood there at the fence with her hands in the chain link and was like I'm sorry, I'm sorry. and everybody would say to her you have to walk away <laughs> like as long as you're standing there he has a reason to keep crying he's what's keeping you and she and it was and I my heart bled for her um, but eventually she did yeah. she would just walk away she would be standing down the street when I would go get in my car she'd be around the corner crying yeah um, but she did that for a couple of weeks and he stopped it. Well, and my daughter used to actually cry and freak out when I would take her to preschool and this went on forever and ever. I mean, it went on. I mean, there were times where it was gone and then it would come back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the best part was that when I would talk to the teachers later, they would say, it's a show for you. She, yeah. This is a show she's putting on for you. And it's, I swear to you, <laughs> as soon as you walk out, yeah. the tears go away and she's happy and smiling and running around. Yeah. And so, um, you know. So we just need to know that. It feels horrible. It feels like your heart is being pulled out through your ear. <laughs> 
but um, but we can we can get through that. Uh, but know that we appreciate that you're having emotions with it too. Okay, uh, one more question with you, and then we have to let you go. Good morning. Our therapist suggested using planned ignoring for our son's attention-seeking disruption, banging on walls and tables. We have, but now he's doing it way more than he usually does, and my husband can't ignore it. After about the seventh bang, he intervenes and tells him to stop and sends him to his room. I'm scared. We just made it worse. Please help. I'm sending you an air hug because it's so hard, and this this will come up so often in life where you put something in place and your team puts something in place and whether it's a husband or a wife or a grandmother or an aunt or the kid down the street or the teacher or whoever they don't get it and so they break the rule that you set and it mucks it up oh yeah uh, so what do we want to say to this mom that she can take back to this dad who we also love we love this dad that at the seventh bang he can't handle it i I, I'm related to you, um, but can you read it to me one more time? I'm yeah. trying to get the context. Is okay. this like when they're trying to sleep, or is it just any time? I the think day? it's any time during the day. Okay. Our therapist suggested using planned ignoring for our son's attention-seeking disruptions, banging on the walls and tables. We have, but now he's doing it way more. Okay. Sounds like extinction burst to me. Yeah. Um, and then he uh, way more than he usually does, and my husband can't ignore it. After about the seventh bang, he intervenes and tells him to stop and sends him to his room, and we and the therapist has told you that it's attention seeking and so okay. dad has said let me give you what you needed got it okay so <laughs> yeah so dad needs an intervention <laughs> yeah that's really um, it and actually it's not that big a deal to do um, dad should leave the area and go put headphones on and shut the door and do something loud enough to where he doesn't hear banging and let mom Great deal advice. with it and it will go away and then dad can be back in the picture and honestly once dad sees once that this honestly is how this goes away it won't be as hard the next time and maybe the third time you won't have to send dad, dad down the hallway with the headphones on i love that advice <laughs> yeah um yeah have him go on a walk, leave, do something, but get busy and not be able to hear the noise that's going on. Because what we can't have is dad giving the attention that the child was seeking. Yeah. Otherwise, because now, um, I mean, in, in a sense, it sounds like they probably have made it worse for the moment, but that doesn't mean it's never going to get better. Right. But all you've done is taught him before he was doing four bangs. And now you've taught him, I'm sorry, you need to do seven. And then we will react at seven. At yeah. seven, you will get your paycheck. And so now he's not going to stop at seven. When you take away the paycheck, he's going to go to 12 or 14 or 44. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you don't get dad on board with this he will eventually probably reinforce 12 or 14 or whatever yep. and then now we've made it even more right of a and big then deal. you will be at 44 so we need to just get dad in the situation where he can't even mess yeah. it up um or you know i mean we can try and educate him and whatnot about it and maybe he'll be able to deal with it but honestly some things just bother people so much oh, and they yeah. can't deal with it that's why and... sam related to this dad there's some <laughs> things i can't handle that i'm like I've, my husband and i will do tag team i'll go you're it because i have to be someplace else or i'm gonna get i, I do that wop, 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 wop. i want to lecture you about this blah, 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 which i know doesn't work but there's something cellular <laughs> in me that has to nag um so but i'm gonna tell you this is a practice i've done okay when i can't handle it anymore i go in my room shut the door lock in put headphones on <laughs> And there we have it. And this is like the tantrums going on or whatnot. Because yeah. it just, 
gets to you. Yeah. To the point where we're people. Come you on. just want to like fly off the oh, handle. Yeah. You know, you want to go crazy. My and thing is, I say I'm going to run down the street with my hair on fire, <laughs> brandishing a hatchet because I can't handle it. Right. So we get it. Dad's a person. He's not a bad bad person. He's just having emotions about it yeah. too. But we have to change the dynamic here. Or you're going to have a child who's banging on, on the table all the time. Yeah. And you can draw dad a picture and say, this is what the intervention is. This is what his paycheck is. We have to cut him off from the paycheck. You're having a hard time not giving the paycheck, so we're going to make you go someplace else. But you have to get dad willing to do that. Yeah. And, you know, and you can talk to dad about what's at stake because, you know, your child is making awesome progress. He's clearly intelligent. And he knows, and what he's doing right now is manipulating dad. <laughs> I do want to say one thing. If this is all for attention, teach him, make sure you're teaching him something else that he can do to get attention. There you go. Very important. It should help Replacement the banging go behavior. away pretty much immediately. He just needs a way to get the attention in a yeah. more functional manner. Yeah. So make sure that's in place as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> Wonderful for that. All right. We thank you so much. This was all about real progress. Uh, I love this. And uh, so we have you back again next week. Is that true? Uh, what's the we day next so? week? I don't know. <laughs> I think we'll so. figure that out. Hopefully okay. we have Dr. Nadowski next week. Okay. We are going to take a break. We're going to go to the A word that I was mentioning before, an ongoing documentary following a little boy, Jack Riley, who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two. And we're dropping in and seeing what it's like in his home as this intensive good quality ABA is happening using all different kinds of techniques to get him to be able to acquire the skills that he needs to have the success that he wants. It's not one size fits all but you'll also see that um, as part of his program they're using the skills program that Dr. Nadowski co-created um, and that is available to you as well. So uh, check it out. Uh, when we come back um, after this we've got a little bit of news for you and don't forget forget that we're having Dr. Jonathan Tarbox in the next hour. We're having race car driver Jason Cherry is going to be with us talking about what he's doing to raise awareness for autism. And then at noon Pacific time, three o'clock Easter time, we are going Eastern. Did I say Easter? Yeah. <laughs> Eastern time. We are going to be joined live by Temple Grandin. She's going to be answering your questions. You guys are starting to send in questions. Keep them coming. We've got her live for a half an hour in our extended show today to answer your questions. So don't go anywhere. But here first is the A word. ID questions are um, just basic questions that you know anyone would ask you like what's your name what's your age how are you and we're teaching him um, you know to reply you know my name is Jack Riley I'm two years old and when we ask him you know, how are you supposed to say I'm fine or I'm good um, just so it's a conversation starter you know I didn't probe through what he knows yet but he might surprise me I don't know he always tests how old are you Two. Oh, wow. Two like this? You do it? Oh, that's a good try. You do the fingers? You trying? Two. There you go. What's your name? Tablet. All right, well, I guess he knows those. <laughs> hey, what's your name? My two. My name is Tablet. 
Hey, Jack Riley, who is that? It's Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this? His mom was saying he was getting so excited that he's like discovering new, um, like phonetic sounds on his own, like with things that he knows, like dinosaur and pancake. Hey, what's this one? Duh, duh. Good job. What about ba ba? Good job. requests the bike but doesn't play with it. Since he is no longer being compliant with Jessica, they leave, which begins a tantrum. to ignore the tantrum because giving him attention may prolong the tantrum and make it worse. Every time we asked him to do anything, he sat down. And sort of, uh, not, not violent is the wrong word, but roughly to where, you know, he almost threw his head back on cement a couple times. Where I grabbed his arms and lowered him because he was going to throw his head back, I thought. I have some tools that I use from you guys. None of them worked. I, don't think, I, I think it was more uh, energy. You know what I mean? He's cooped up, and then there's no way I'm doing what you asked me right now. I'm, I got to see Lon. I think he just was like, I'm not doing what you do. I'm going to play right now. And uh, so we tried, even tried that to where differentiate. If you go on the lawn, you can play, but you're going to walk with me, and then you can play. No, it did not work. It was sort of a setback in my mind, like. I hadn't seen this behavior. I had no idea what to do. Oh, okay. Well, well, that's why we're here. <laughs> I know. So, not to make it dire, but yesterday to me was sort of a rough day. It was surprising to me. 
I know I make I make a lot of mistakes when I'm with him when he does stuff like that, but I I, I know somewhere in here the tools are there. But yesterday I was like they just they just all went out the window because he was just not, nothing was working. He he was uh, he was the boss yesterday. I couldn't figure it out. You do the A word thing, and uh, sometimes I'm set back when he does something brilliant. He is who he is. And he'll be who he'll be. But uh, I want him to go on dates and not be necessarily the 180 IQ guy who's a focused on one thing. He does things that that I just go, look at Cheryl, go, oh my God. <laughs> I don't think I can do that now. Welcome back. You know what I love is that I had forgotten that it was this episode of the A word that we were going to be showing, which goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about with Dr. Nadowski, the mom who wrote in and said, we've been told to use planned ignoring for the child banging on the table, but dad is having a hard time doing it. And I think we might be making it worse. And what do we cut to, but to this A word episode that we're showing this week where dad has been told when Jack Riley is having a tantrum, don't give it attention. And what does dad stand? there and do he says shh calm down and we have all been pre-programmed to have these reactions and this is why I love this because don't we love the a-word dad don't we just love this dad I just love how honest he is and he's a good person and you see how much he cares about his children and you know this this is a stand-up dad there's nothing bad we can say about this dad but he doesn't do it perfectly every time and he's a work in progress learning how to do this and it goes against the brain and it's frustrating for him that you know he wants to stand there and say Jack Riley calm down this is an inappropriate response and have that whole discussion and I'm related to that dad too somewhere genetically uh not not really but somewhere genetically because that's me I want to I want to have a conversation about it and go you know you really don't need to be freaking out right now but we have been told by our behavior experts don't do that because this is attention seeking and the more attention you give it, the more they're going to freak out. Right. And really, quite honestly, it's the same thing as the question about the mom saying the separation anxiety that once she's gone, the child's fine and settles down. But when she's there, you know, there's all these tears and emotion. So we have to be willing to accept as parents that there are times that our behavior and our kids' behavior come together and create a funky world of this is the way we do things. It's not good. You know, Jack Riley throws a tantrum. Dad says to him, shh, calm down. It's enough of a paycheck that Jack Riley continues to have this reaction. And the therapist very nicely says, you need to not give that attention. And what does dad say? He says, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. It's really hard. This is really hard to not, you know, and it is. And that's really the honest truth about it. Um, In this instance, the therapist is there and able to say this because, uh, and and the the mom and dad have a great relationship in the A-word, but I know when I was doing, and I have a great relationship with my husband too, but I know sometimes I'm not the most tactful that, you know, what would happen when we were in this situation is that my son would be freaking out and my, my husband would say something like, you know, calm down. And then I'm like, don't do that. We've been told not to do that. <laughs> right. Right. And now my husband's like, what? You know, I forgot. Right. 
and, and it's that kind of a, oh, you know, and then we laugh about it later on. We do. But uh, it's nicer when there's a therapist there to say it to the other spouse and say, we need you just not to, because there's no other baggage with it uh, that they feel like, you know, they've been taken to task for it. So in any case, you see that it is not just you. We all, you know, and there will be a time when you will want to give attention to something, quite honestly. So, but we do need to get dad on board one way or the other. And as Dr. Nadowski said, you know, if it is that he has to walk away, then that's what we have to do. But uh, great, great example, just furthering what we were just talking about. So I love that. Hey, I wanted to take just a second to update you. I promised you some news. We reported to you that uh, we've been reporting to you for the last year that for kids who were in the Healthy Families Program here in the uh, state of California, they had access to Medi-Cal, and that allowed them to get ABA therapy. Then when we switched over to the Affordable Care Act, some choices were made by the, our legislators here in California. They had the option of including ABA in Medi-Cal. The decision ultimately uh, came down that it was not included in Medi-Cal. So children who had had therapies and who needed them desperately lost them. We've been lobbying for a long time to have that change. We've had some movement from the governor's office saying, look, we know it needs to be done, but it can't come from this fund. We've been waiting for a federal response. Last week, we did have a federal response guidelines about what should be covered by the state's Medicare programs. And it was very definitive. We reported it to you here that they said they had to cover early intensive screenings, diagnostic things, and therapies and it included ABA it included speech it included OT and it was very definitive about them having to include them so we've been waiting to hear back from the state of California about what they're going to do and we got that response uh, that was published and it is not uh, good news what we're hearing from a state official is uh, that they're saying well we're gonna have to look at this a little further to see whether we can afford it uh, that's my takeaway um, from this article that appeared in California Healthline. It says, many steps to go before authorizing autism therapy as a benefit, state says. Uh, and I, this makes me break into hives. We have Renee Malo. She's the de Deputy Director of Benefits and Eligibility at the Department of Health Care Services here in the state of California. She is the one who's being quoted as saying that there are many steps. Uh, she says, we are not changing course on this issue. Uh, and, and this is in an email that she wrote this, so we're not misquoting her. Now that we have federal guidance, we are beginning the process of planning and implementing policy based upon that federal guideline and state statutory requirements. It is a complex process involving the department and control agency stakeholders, legislature, administration, and the federal government. Okay. Um, Specifically, the law states that the DHCS will implement behavior health treatment to the extent that it is required by the federal government to be covered by Medi-Cal for individuals under 21 years of age, she goes on to say. DHCS will implement BHT services only if, one, it receives federal approval to obtain federal financial participation, 
Two, it seeks an appropriate uh, appropriation of state funding required for the fiscal year. Three, statutory authority for the benefit is provided. And four, it consults with its stakeholders. Well, I just want to say to Ms. Morrow, I hear you saying we have to figure out how we're going to afford it. But I want you to know that in that guideline, it doesn't say if you can afford it and if you get approval from people in your state. It was very clear. And if you're with me and feel that, um, and she's saying that this could take two years for them to figure out and decide, if you think that that is a gross, gross abuse of what is clearly lined out in the federal guideline, excuse me, then we want to ask you to reach out to their office, to Renee Mallow, reach out to your legislators. And if you don't know who your legislators are, you can go to Autism Speaks, go to the Advocacy tab, click on your state, put in your zip code, and it will give you your legislators. will even call them for you and connect the phone so that you can be talking directly to their office and let them know that's not what the federal guideline said. Yes, we want to give you a little bit of time and leeway to figure out how you're going to do it, but not if you're going to do it. And you very clearly use the word if. Um, and that's not going to fly. So join me in talking with her about uh, the fact that this needs to be done and that lives are at stake while she's figuring out her dolls and dishes here. But ask me how I really feel. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to be back with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. Don't forget, a little later in the hour, Jason Cherry. And then at the top of the hour, Temple Grandin. Stick with us. Skills is an online program that provides assessment, curriculum, positive behavior support planning for challenging behavior, and progress tracking, and it does this all in one place. The Skills Assessment and Curriculum addresses eight areas of development, which even includes advanced higher level areas such as executive functions and cognition, which pretty much makes Skills the only ABA-based set of curricula for teaching more complex skills, things like problem solving, planning, self-management, perspective taking, and even inferring and predicting others' private events. Skills is a four-step system. Step one is to add the child to your account. Step two is to start assessment. The skills assessment is the only ABA-based assessment with psychometric research demonstrating the language subscale to have excellent reliability. Every area of human functioning and typical child development from infancy to adolescence was researched, making the skills assessment the most comprehensive of its kind in the world, and we're quite proud of that. Skills is easy to use. Simply click Start Assessment and begin answering questions, or simply type in a keyword find specific activities to assess, and add activities to treatment. Step three, choose activities. Once you've completed the assessment, Skills selects from a pool of 4,000 activities categorized by age, level, and skill type to provide you with exactly those activities each child needs. Start by choosing a curriculum, then a lesson, and finally an activity. Click the information icon to view prerequisites, ages in which targets develop, examples, and IEP goals. Click the video icon to watch a short video. Once you've identified an activity you want to teach, adding activities to treatment is a snap. Step 4. Start treatment. Here you can access customizable activity lesson details, add your own customized targets and exemplars, and edit an activity status such as introducing or mastering it. You can even print handouts such as worksheets, tracking forms, visual aids, and other materials. Skills also offers multiple progress charts, mapping curriculum progress, 
lesson progress, and cumulative number of activities and targets mastered over time. The skills language curriculum is categorized by verbal behavior type so that users can identify progress for verbal operants, such as echoics, mans, tacks, and interverbals. Skills is one of the only programs that provides the ability to write behavior intervention plans, or BIPs, for challenging behavior. With just a few clicks, the outline of the behavior intervention plan is written for you and ready to be printed and implemented. You can learn more about Skills today and get started by visiting us at www.skillsforautism.com or you can call us at 877-975-4559. Skills. Progress starts here. Welcome back to Autism Live. In case you haven't noticed, we're having a very exciting day here. And normally we just show you how to get in contact with us at the top of the show, but I'm gonna ask Emily to play again for you at her leisure, whenever you have a second, Emily, uh, all the different ways that you can get in touch with us. We're taking your questions right now and we're here with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. He's gonna be answering your questions. I want you to know a little later in this hour, we're gonna have race car driver Jason Cherry is gonna be with us talking about what he's doing to race autism awareness. You're going to love that. And then at the top of the next hour, for the first time ever on this show, we're having Temple Grandin live. That means that you can send in a question, be stay, be tuned in. We're going to stay with you for a half an hour after the show, stay live with her. She's going to be joining us via Skype from the Autism Society of America's conference in Indianapolis. She just got done giving their keynote speech this morning and brought the house down. Uh, so we're thrilled that we have an opportunity for you to be talking to her and pretty much real time. You can be writing in your questions on our live feature on autism-live.com right now. You guys are writing in on Facebook. You're tweeting. We're taking all those. We're going to ask as many questions as we can while we have her during that half hour. So we hope you'll stay tuned for all of that. But first, uh, you guys have already been writing in questions for Dr. Tarbox and Dr. Jonathan Tarbox is here with us in the studio. We welcome you. I'm thrilled to have you here on this very exciting day. You're a part of the excitement because as I always say, he's got a beautiful brain. I uh, love to pick his brain about things. He has extensive experience in the field of autism. He is the head of research and development here at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders and also the director of the Autism Research Group. I think arguably one of the most important up-and-coming organizations because they do research on things that are meaningful to us, those of us who have children with autism now. Uh, so we congratulate you on all the wonderful things that you're doing and we're thrilled that we get some of your time here today. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Well, I'm going to jump right in to some questions that we have here. Uh, hi, Dr. Tarbox and Shannon. My son is three and a half, autistic, been with card for 40 hours. He used to love puzzles. Now he has no patience for them. Uh, is that a good thing? Also, we've been trying to potty train him for nine months now. By the way, I forward in this, we had asked this mom to forward her information, and so she's hoping that you had a chance to look at it. We used to use an iPad as a reward, then we took that away and started using it as a reward when he plays with siblings. He loves the iPad, but now when I say, let's play with your brother and sister for five minutes, you will get the iPad, he says, no iPad, and walks away. His twin sister tries to engage with him, and, and he ignores her completely. He will take out a board ga game to play. Once I say, let's play with brother and sister, he says, all done. Is it normal that he has no desire to engage with his siblings at all and they said thank you all right uh 
quite a, a there. yeah, quite a lot there. Okay, <laughs> first of all, should we start with the puzzles question? I think she yeah. asked. Uh, he loved is, puzzles, and now he's not into them anymore. Uh, is that a problem, or is that normal? Is that good even? Um, and I guess we don't have enough information to really know exactly, but um, but yeah, of course, it's totally normal for people's preferences to shift, regardless of whether you're on or off the autism spectrum. Um, and uh, especially for a lot of folks on the spectrum, it's really great when we see them getting interested yeah. in new things and not just perseverating on the same interests over and over. So I would say let's not worry about that. Yeah. Um, that's fine. Give him a break from puzzles for a while. And he may cycle back into it. That's right. And you may cycle know. into different kinds of puzzles. Right. But, exactly. you know, for all intents and purposes, it's probably a good thing. Not just okay. Right. Probably, probably a good thing. Probably just fine. Yeah. So uh, she mentions the potty training, nine months. Uh, and I know you've written in before and had some concerns about that. It will happen. It will happen, and, and, you, and people at CARD, in, including potentially yourself, are going to review to see if there's something that needs to be tweaked with that, because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times we just have to tweak one element and then our kids fly. Right, exactly. So moving on to the siblings. Right. Who doesn't okay. want to play with the siblings even for the all-powerful iPad. Right, right, exactly, yeah. So um, the first thing that, that always comes to mind anytime we're talking about you know any of this stuff is always the motivation, right? And so um, it sounds like she's using his most motivating item to try to get him to want to do it. Um, and that's good, right? You always want to start out with a big positive reinforcer. Right. Um, in addition to a big positive reinforcer, you want to do stuff um, on the antecedent end, right? The mm -hmm. antecedent modifications, which are things that you do before your child has the opportunity to do the behavior that you want right. to do. Um, and it's basically ways to set your child up for success. And so uh, the number one thing I would start with um, after identifying really powerful reinforcer, which she did, um, is trying to make it fun. And I know that sounds obvious, kind of trite, but you know, you might have to try 10 different ways of mm -hmm. making it fun until you find the one that really clicks for them. You know? So maybe that particular board game is just not motivating enough. It's not fun enough, right? Um, maybe board games in general are no good. Maybe we've got to figure out some completely other thing. Maybe it's going to be roughhousing. Maybe it's going to be acting wacky and silly. Maybe it's even... Um, you know, letting them do the one thing that drives you nuts that he always does, but just let him do it if he gets to do it and have fun, in, you know, with interactively with siblings, right. you know. Um, so you got to get really creative and yeah. you, you literally might have to try 10 things before you find one thing that that is, is successful at motivating the child to actually want to uh, hang out with the siblings. Yeah, because what we're what uh, what I read from this is that the usual paycheck isn't big enough. Right, it's not big enough. Yeah. But I also what, what my mind because you guys are training me how to be uh, a sleuth mm -hmm. when I look at these things, the thing that pops out at me is that um, she's getting out the board game and he seems to be okay with the idea that the board game is going to come out and it's not until she says okay let's play with brother and sister that he says all done right. so my question is uh, when when he's playing with brother and it seems like he wants to play the board game with mom that's reinforcing enough right. but not with brother and sister or not with brother and sister and mom mm -hmm. so that's what I have questions around because honestly we talked about this earlier with Dr. Nadowski a child who was having separation anxiety from mom and mm -hmm. wanted to, and I was saying well if I had my choice of being with my mom and having her included with stuff that would be my preference right. so uh, you know I'm wondering does he not want to share you or do you set up the board game and say brother and sister play and you leave and mm -hmm. what he really wants is time with you. Yeah, very good point. And so if you can stick, uh, keep yourself in that situation, if he wants you there, that might help. 
um, yeah, that's, that's a great place to start, definitely. And even if it's a thing where, um, tell me if this is horrible, but as a mom, if you're bigger than the iPad, um, maybe during just a portion of the day, the only time he gets to spend time with you is when he's playing with a brother and sister. Sure, yeah, not not his whole rest of his life, right? right? But just, maybe even a 10-minute period of the day, it, yeah. it might be worth it. Um, another thing to, to really consider is anytime you're fading in something that your child doesn't like, mm -hmm. it's good to do it little bit at a time okay. so if what you what you might naturally do is say okay let's play with siblings and let's do it for 15 minutes or half an hour mm -hmm. right which is kind of a normal uh, uh, period of time to play but maybe you literally need to start with one minute like okay. we're gonna tolerate you know sister or brother hanging out with us with the board game for one minute you know right. and then you get the iPad or whatever it is or your time with mom or whatever or yeah. whatever the yeah. reinforcer is one other big big thing is um, uh, variability or variety of reinforcers so she so sounds like she's identified the iPad iPad is the highest preferred, but even so, uh, even the highest preferred over and over loses its uh, potency over the course of the day if yeah. that's what you continue to use over and over. Yeah. So really what you want to do is have a variety of reinforcers, so it'd be well worth looking into other, other reinforcers and or uh, restricting access to the reinforcer too. That's another big thing is if you want the iPad to work, maybe you need to go a couple hours with no iPad first before it's time to use it as a reinforcer. We had as jargon a couple of weeks ago uh, satiation mm -hmm. and talking about, you know, just like you know you may love chocolate cake but if i put a piece of chocolate cake in front of you the first one you're going to love but the fourth one you're going to go i think i'm done yeah and after you eat a whole <laughs> cake it would be a, it would be punishment to have another right yeah. right so um so that's that satiation that we were talking right. about a couple of weeks ago okay we're going to take a short break we're going to come back with more questions for dr jonathan tarbox stick with us Hello fellow activists, today we're going to talk about the 10 steps to empowerment. Step number one, accept and embrace this challenge. By telling you to accept and embrace the challenge, I don't mean you have to love autism. Let's get this straight. I love my child with autism, but I hate that autism stole a big part of his childhood. When I look back at my journey, I realize that I knew in my gut that my son was regressing at the age of two. I had a hard time with acceptance. It didn't come easy for me. My denial may have stemmed from the fact that I didn't want to go through what my own mother had, raising a child with Down syndrome with no support. equated my mother's alcoholism with her being stuck at home with a disabled child. I didn't want that life for myself. I couldn't believe that having lived through the experience of having a brother with special needs, I was now faced with having to raise my own child with special needs as well. But being in denial did not make the truth go away. It's when we can accept the truth that it can set us free. Until next time, stay strong and keep the faith. 
Welcome back to Autism Live and to a segment that we call Science Beat. We're here with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, the head of research and development at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders and the director of the Autism Research Group. He is just a fabulous expert in the field. We really could have nobody better here to answer your questions, and that's exactly what he's doing. So, hi, Dr. Tarbox and Shannon. I know the studies say that intensive 40 hours of therapy with a high-quality ABA provider have been shown to be the best approach for kids with autism. Notice that I haven't said recovered because that seems to be like winning the lotto. My son has that through card, but it seems that he is learning a lot. There is also a lot more that he needs to learn, and I feel that we are going to be playing catch-up for the rest of our lives, for the rest of his life. Please reassure me of how ABA will eventually help, help catch him up. Also wanted to ask you about OT and speech therapy. Really, how important are they if the child is only receiving them for not even an hour a week each week? Uh, and they said thank you. All right. So. Well, first of all, congratulations. You do have your child in the gold standard treatment program, yeah. 40 hours a week, starting as early as possible, of good quality ABA. I mean, that is, you've already won the lottery just getting access to that treatment. Absolutely. Um, because I the truth concur. is, even most people that do have uh, access to ABA and even have some funding for ABA still don't get the amount that they're actually supposed to get. Yeah. I mean, most of our kids that we treat at CARD still don't even get the full 30 to 40 hours, even yeah. though that's a recommendation we're making, even if they have insurance or whatever other funding because sometimes staffing that's right it, it could be staffing it could be that the funding providers just don't provide funding for at, at sufficient levels they just don't do it and right. there's no one there to make them so so that's the first thing is be thankful of that and, and, and mindful of how lucky you are to get that now that's not to uh, belittle your challenges and your worries about the future um, you know th this is exactly the same uh, concern that we hear from pretty much every family that yeah. we work with is what is what does the future look like for my child and um, please assure me that yeah. um, that it's going to be better, you know, a brighter future. I used to say, draw me the roadmap. Right. Show me, show me that what we're doing is working. Because when you're in the middle of it, it's like mountain climbing. Right. You, you know, when you were standing at the bottom of the mountain, you saw the peak. But once you start on the mountain, you can't see the peak anymore. That's right. And you need people to remind you that you're moving up. That's right. That's I remember right. that feeling quite well. Yeah, and and that is the daily experience. Yeah. And there's no way to escape that feeling, but there is very productive things to keep in mind. And, okay. Uh, and the number one thing that we always say that this is probably the most important mantra in ABA is. It's not about the end game necessarily, because we never know exactly what that end game will be. Right. It is about maximizing your child's potential through, through doing the most intensive, best quality treatment. And so every single day, your child is gonna learn something that he didn't already know yesterday. And every single day, your child is gonna gain skills that allow him to be, him or her, to be more independent and more powerful and have more self-determination in life mm -hmm. and frankly, have more fun in life, yeah. okay? And so for some small percentage of kids, that maximum potential is recovery, which means they just don't qualify for a diagnosis anymore and they right. no longer really have skills that they need to, to work on. Uh, for the majority of kids, and we don't know what percentage, maybe about 30% or 40% of kids recover if they get the best treatment early, you know, as early as possible. Uh -huh. For the rest of the kids, they're, they're not gonna make that, that, um, that exact outcome, but the maximum possible outcome for the rest of the kids is still learning a huge amount of skills that make a huge difference in their oh, quality of life. Exponential, yeah. So the worst case scenario is your child is going to learn how to communicate better, how to be more independent, how to fill his spare time with meaningful leisure skills, right? Not just stereotypy or destructive behavior how to make friends if he wants them, how to play with other kids if he wants to, 
Um, so that's the worst thing that could happen is real significant progress across all of those areas. Yeah. I, I will throw in there too when we're talking about catching up because in the beginning I would say the first two years of an early intensive behavioral intervention and this is my personal experience and a couple of moms that I know that have been through this too so know that I'm I'm speaking from that base um, in those first two years when you have so much to catch up on it seems like it could never happen you'll never get there, that it doesn't matter what you do, you'll never get there. And here's the crazy, crazy thing that helped me in my mind, that I remember year, a hundred years ago, it's not really a hundred years ago, but years ago when Regis Philbin was, I, I think, approaching 70, he decided that he was gonna start to learn how to play the piano. And I remember thinking, <laughs> really? Because, not because he wanted to play the piano to enjoy it, but that he was doing concert dates and he wanted to be able to sit and play numbers in a performance that people paid ticket money wow. for. So it wasn't just that he wanted to tinker and play, he wanted to be able to do it on a huge level like Atlantic City and Vegas. Wow. And I remember thinking, somebody needs to talk to Regis and pull him aside and say, you're too old, that's not going to happen. And he said, and people did say that to him, and he said, what else? I, you know, I'm either going to do it or I'm not going to. What else do I have to do that's more important? I'll get wherever I get with it. Right. But I, you know, I wished I'd started when I was 12 or 30 or 50, but right. I'm here today, so I'm going to start to do this. And he plays the piano now in his concerts. That's amazing. And 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 I know it's a stupid sort of example, but That's it was actually... something that always I said to myself, well, what else do we have to do? Right. Let's make as much progress as we can and we'll see where we get. It's really helpful in those first two years to every once in a while, and if you're with CARD, you have skills. Sit down with your supervisor and look at the progress that your child has made every once in a while. That's because right. Because it might be so incremental right now to you that you feel like, oh, we're never going to get there. But I remember doing that at about a year in, and they showed me a file box of things that my child had mastered. Right. And and honestly, if you do want more of a microscopic level snapshot is every two weeks when your child has their clinic or their mm -hmm. team meeting, it's completely acceptable. In fact, I highly recommend for you to ask your child's supervisor, tell me five things my child mastered this week. Tell mm -hmm. me 10 things, whatever. However many new skills your child mastered that week, get literally get a list right doesn't just have to be a you know verbal description oh he's doing pretty well on colors or whatever like get the actual specific individual skills that he learned yeah. get a list and and actually that helps you do your homework which should be helping him to generalize those skills yes for the next two weeks right because what you're always doing is not just getting happy that you're or being happy that your child learned something but helping your child master those skills across his or her daily life great point so let's go further with that so if you've asked for the five things that they mastered this week then a lot of parents would think oh good then I don't need to worry about that but in fact opposite, those yeah. should be the five things that you spend the next week working on absolutely. so that the, that skill really becomes their own absolutely I think we misunderstand dr. Tarbox sometimes if mastered master sounds like oh they've got it so I can move on to something else but yeah. mastery is a long way from generalization yeah but it's it's, it's almost uh, uh, not a very good term to use actually really all that all that it means is it's mastered under these 
particular circumstances, meaning like when working with therapists, professionally trained therapists, it does not mean that a child on the spectrum now can has mastery of those skills in his everyday life. That okay. also needs to be worked on. That's the generalization that we're always trying right. to get to. Okay, uh, I'm going to launch into another question here. Um, how can I help my adult daughter learn how to use coping skills? She's very smart, but usually engaged in self-talk and pacing when she's home. I'm not sure how to reach her effectively, and thank you very much. Okay. Uh, well, with yeah, without knowing uh, your daughter better, it's hard to say kind of what how what level of a, a challenge this is, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it's something that's rising to the level of pretty significant anxiety, let's say, or phobias or uh, things like that, then you know you might want to actually get your daughter some counseling for that. That's a, a, a you know entirely possible. We don't know, um, but uh, if it maybe isn't quite to that level. Um, Coping skills are a great strategy. It's actually, we're doing a study on that right now, teaching uh, kids coping skills to deal with when their inflexibilities have been violated. So when they have particular rigidities or routines that they have to follow and they're just not able to, we've taught them a variety of skills like um, deep breathing, um, counting to 10, imagining that they're in a different place, mm -hmm. um, and a number of other skills that basically just give the child something more productive to do in that moment mm -hmm. rather than having a meltdown. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, those skills can be taught just like everything else can be taught in yeah. ABA, but it's not something you can kind of just figure out on your own. It is something that needs to be taught by professionals who have training uh, and who are qualified in how to teach those particular skills. And that's not even every ABA provider. Most ABA yeah. providers actually don't don't really go into that area very much. In fact, I, you know, I was going to throw in, I've talked before on the show that I did cognitive behavioral therapy for my panic disorder as an adult um, when I got to the point where I couldn't cope anymore and so with the right cognitive behavioral therapist they can help you to relanguage what's going on in your head right. because that self-talk kind of thing when you're like oh my gosh this is happening and then you can spiral out of control the cognitive behavioral therapy teaches you to put a different thought in there that rearranges your behavior really uh -huh. Uh -huh. and um which is why they call it cognitive behavioral therapy. That just came to me in this moment. <laughs> like, oh, that's why they call it cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, I'll buy a vowel. And then um, I have yes. to plug acceptance and commitment. I was just going to say, too. I'm so glad you're bringing it up. Talk about that. Yeah, so we're, we're developing some work in that area. It's, it's, um, it's an approach to therapy that uh, comes from behavior analysis. It's extremely successful in treating anxiety, um, substance abuse, depression, um, chronic pain. There's, it's widely applicable. And basically, it's just an approach to um, uh, help um, deal with your own thoughts and your own feelings and your own private events, we call them in behavior analysis, um, in a more productive way so that uh, instead of buying into them and instead of them sort of uh, letting them rule your life, in addition to experiencing them, because you can't really get rid of them, but while you experience them, you learn other ways to behave more productively that are more in line with your values. And so, um, you know, if, for example, if your daughter spends a lot of time worrying about particular things, um, rather than, uh, or I'm oh, sorry, in addition to experiencing that worry, um, acceptance and commitment therapy would help her identify what else she would like to do in addition to that, yeah. you know, so rather than sitting around worrying all the time, it's okay, yeah, I feel worried, but what are my values right now? What would I actually like to get done? You know, maybe it's go for a walk, maybe it's exercise, maybe it's make a phone call or a Facebook post to my friend, whatever, mm -hmm. but something that actually matters that's in line with my values, yeah. and let's just go and do it. Right. Um, so if, if she's interested in learning more about that, um, she can email us and we can okay. put her in touch with somebody, uh, but there's a great website called um, 
the Association for Contextual Behavior Science. And it's, um, you can Google it, it's easy to find. And they have a registry of trained ACT therapists. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT is, is the acronym. Um, and she can search for her zip code or her area or whatever. She might actually be able to find someone there. And there's a, there's a great book, to The Reality Slap. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic. That's yeah. actually written by somebody who uh, practices uh, Acceptance Commitment Therapy. And in addition to that, just coincidentally happens mm -hmm. to be the parent of a child on the autism spectrum. That's right. Um, so that's quite, an a, quite a gift book. to us in the community. Yeah, it's an amazing book that I recommend for all parents of kids on the spectrum, The Reality Slap is what it's called. It's equally applicable uh, to if your child is newly diagnosed or or not. Uh, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with autism, strangely. Yeah. It's, it's made for, it's written for anybody who's dealing with um, a challenge in their life that's uh, kind of inescapable that you can't necessarily get out of, but you want to figure out a way to live a more productive, happier, uh, uh, more fulfilling life while you're also dealing with that challenge. And then, and then one last thing, I will tell you that I am very active on Pinterest and I have just noticed recently that there are a wide variety of resources on Pinterest that deal just with coping skills for anxiety, mm -hmm. that you can go in and find boards on autism and people have, you know, coping mechanisms for kids who are little, for teenagers, and they're helpful little hints about things that you could try because um, for a wide variety of things. So hopefully all of those things together, you're going to find something that works for her. I want to squeeze in one more question before we have to go talk sure. with uh, Jason Cherry. And don't forget the Temple Grandin's at the top of the hour. Um, Okay, uh, they, somebody wrote in and said they're a huge fan of the show. My 35-year-old son is making huge progress with his target behaviors, so now we're working on the smaller stuff. He wears three to four pairs of underwear every day. He does not have accidents. He knows that he should only wear one pair. Not sure the reason, but I know there are many ways we can tackle this. Token board with a question mark? Can you recommend some? And thank you very much. Okay, interesting. This is a novel problem for me. I've never heard of this particular behavior, so that's interesting. Yes. It's always fun to get new ones. Um, so the first thing that I always do is ask myself, uh, is, is talk about prioritizing problems. Mm -hmm. And she's mentioning that herself, that he's yeah. made major progress, which first of all, I want to say congratulations. That's awesome to hear that good yes. news that we have an adult, uh, you know, who has significant challenges and who is making awesome progress. Love it. Uh, so congratulations. That's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, what I would do is prioritize and, and, and then the next thing you do is when you kind of have your list of priorities and it sounds like maybe this is cropping up to the top of the list maybe for this mom, is then ask yourself um, what, what is the consequence of doing this behavior in the person's everyday life? Like what does it, what negative impact does the behavior have on the person's everyday life? Mm -hmm. And that's how you kind of decide, okay, is it time to um, do something about this behavior now or can it wait till later? And so. Um, that, that's the question I would ask myself is, is it hard for him to get dressed because he's wearing so many pairs of underwear he can't put his mm -hmm. pants on? Uh, does it take him forever to get ready in the morning because he's putting on so many is pairs of underwear? Is it too hot? Is it too sweaty? Um, and if the answer to one of those is yes, then okay, let's treat it. If it's just that it kind of irks you because it's kind of weird that he's wearing so many pairs, right. but nobody else even knows or sees it and right. it's actually not a problem functionally, right. then I would honestly say just let him do it for yeah. a while longer, you know? Give him another six months and worry yeah. about it later, you yeah. know? I agree. And I, I, and I'm just thinking in terms of, cause I have a boy and 
um, I always get educated about. There's a lot going on down there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and I, my son is at a point where you know we're just in that window where he's verbal enough and not embarrassed enough to talk about these things. And I know that in like another six months I'll be shut out forever Definitely. and never hear about these things again. But you know, recently we've had big discussions about this bathing suit rubs and and this one doesn't and this pair of pants and this is more comfortable. And it was very eye-opening to me to understand, because I do not have the equipment, <laughs> to understand, you know, firsthand everything that's going on down there. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how verbal, and, and if he already understands that he should only wear one, I'm wondering if there is a component, a sensory component a um, as well. And so my head goes to, uh, you know, maybe there is a need for three pairs, mm -hmm. but maybe you could move to a thinner Right, um, right. Th you know, one of them could be thinner, maybe they're... Or maybe, th like, the different types of underwear, too, like boxer briefs right. versus boxers versus briefs, you know, that yeah. just switching might take care of the problem, might be comfortable with just one pair. Could be. So lots of different things there to look at, but... But, uh, but if anything else, if it doesn't come down to any of that, and it's just ABA procedures, then, yes. yeah, great. Positive reinforcement is always the way to go. Okay. And also changing the demand slowly. So maybe, like, having him go 10 minutes with only one pair on and then let him put on the rest. And then or, the next day is 20 minutes, whatever. Or even know? going 10 minutes with two pairs instead of three, right? right? right. Like, figure out what the variables are yeah. and what he can tolerate and reward yeah. that and then move from there. Yep. Uh, we, I'd be very interested to hear back about how that goes and if you get to the place where he's happy and excited that he's down to one pair of underwear it'd be very interesting to hear back so in any case uh, we are uh, running out of time here we're gonna uh, take a break we're momentarily gonna say goodbye to Dr. Tarbox but we've invited him to come back while we're talking with Temple Grandin and I'm really looking forward to, to doing that um, but he's gonna take a short break from us and we are going to welcome race car driver Jason Cherry I have to say this is the first time on the show we've done over four, 500 episodes excuse me and we haven't had a race car driver on before and i'm so excited that a we're going to have a race car driver on and that it has something to do with autism because uh, he is doing some very important things to draw awareness to autism and he is joining us also from the autism society of america's conference that they're holding right now in indiana in indianapolis they've got an, a really exciting it's really the first real full day. Uh, Temple Grandin was the keynote speaker there this morning and I, I wish we were there. It's a very exciting conference, but we're, we're enjoying it with you virtually, uh, dropping in on it from time to time. So we're going to take a break. We'll be back with Jason. Don't forget, Temple is at the top of the hour. Stick with us. Hi, this is Lee Sackerman. Talk of facts. One of the questions we hear all the time, how do I know if a treatment is working? If my child has a negative response or, um, or looks like a negative response. Well, there's two things you should look for. All medical interventions need to have clear evaluation guidelines with your physician. You should talk to your doctor ahead of time. If there's a negative response, should you stop? Or does the negative response mean that treatment's working? Let me give you a really solid example. Almost every child um, living with autism at one point in time will have a, a yeast overgrowth. And yeast is extremely common in children with gut and gastrointestinal issues. And when you're not pooping on a regular basis, yeast and other bacteria tend to build up in your gut. Once you treat yeast, often you will have a negative response. What's really important for families to understand in those clear evaluation guidelines with your doctor, they should tell you, hey, your kid may be cranky for a few days. 
uh, following the treatments. There are different things you can do to work with your doctor to lessen that cranky period. But the bottom line is if you don't have clear evaluation guidelines with your physician, you don't know if that treatment is a stop. You have a negative response, stop, which that should be clear with your doctor, versus a negative response of that means the treatment's working. So my favorite thing when we talk to families that are about to go through yeast treatments with their kid after extensive evaluation in labs is, your kid's gonna be a jerk, but oh my God, it's gonna be great in a few days followed by beautiful behavior. So now you know. We'll be back with another Talk of Fact real soon. Take care. Camp Discovery, a free-to-play suite of fun, interactive learning games for kids two and up, designed by experts in autism. Camp Discovery will open your early learner to a world of new skills, shapes, numbers, colors, locations, emotions, and more. Let's get started. Please choose a level. Objects. First, Camp Discovery's intelligent preference assessment determines your child's preferred reward for choosing correctly. Okay, got it. Let's play. Camp Discovery creates a motivating learning environment for your child by minimizing incorrect responses and maximizing successful ones. Find the shoes. Respond correctly and your child is rewarded with their favorite animations. You did it. Respond incorrectly and our unique prompting system guides your child to the correct answer by making it the largest choice. That's not it. Try again. Way to go. Continue to answer correctly and the size gradually reduces until the child makes the correct choice independently. You win! Success! Rewards motivate learning. Complete a round and your child is rewarded with a fun mini-game. Track your child's progress with easy-to-read graphs. Multiple settings options allow you to customize Camp Discovery to your child's unique needs. All this in one single app, the Camp Discovery app, available for free on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon Store. Welcome back to Autism Live. All this week, we have had the wonderful opportunity to drop in from time to time to the Autism Society of America's conference that they're holding in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, we're going to do that again now with a wonderful young man who is an up-and-coming hot race car driver. Now, I said before, we have not yet had a race car driver on the show, and you might be thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with autism? Well, stick around, because you're going to find out. But first of all, we want to welcome Jason Cherry to Autism Live. Jason, are you there? Yes, I am. So you are actually at the conference right now. Um, and I, I, I imagine you're having a great time. Yes, I am. Of well, course. we're thrilled to have you here. But let's start out by talking about race car driving. So tell our audience at home what kind of cars you drive, Jason. I drive a Mazda MX-5 in the Pirelli World Challenge Touring Car A division. And so, uh, so that is that's formula racing? No, this is closed car sports car racing, okay. which will eventually lead into bigger series such as Bentleys, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and whatnot. Wow, very exciting. But you're, you're very young, but you're very hot and up and coming. Tell us about some of the races that you've been participating in and what you've got coming up. Well, I started off racing in formula cars, and uh, I made the transition in the Pirelli World Challenge this series, uh, this year. I was making my pro debut earlier this year, and I have so far raced in places such as Canada, Florida, and other uh, tracks all in North America. 
And uh, my next race coming up is going to be in Ohio, August 1st to 3rd. And that'll be a real big race weekend. We're going to be working with the local chapters to host some kids and families at the track that weekend. Okay, well, we're going to be rooting for you on August 1st. But let's let's talk a little bit about why uh, autism is a subject that you want to be drawing more attention to. Um, well, I have a 22-year-old brother on the autism spectrum. He was adopted from Russia when he was three, so that was before I was born because I'm 18, so there's a five-year difference between us. And I recognized very quickly that I had a very special platform to raise awareness, but not only that, but to reach out to the siblings um, of individuals on the autism spectrum that I can relate to. And uh, I really want to use my racing platform to help raise funding for the different branches of Autism Society, but like I said, more specifically sibling programs such as scholarship uh, programs and sibling outreach programs. Well, I, and I think this is such a timely subject, Jason, because we get questions all the time, both from parents saying, I'm concerned about the siblings and how they're handling this and, and what they're going to do. But we also, from time to time, get uh, messages from siblings. Uh, so tell us about what it was like for you and what you've learned that you want to share with other siblings. Well. Um, to not get into the real deep details, as there was a lot of different events, it was a difficult childhood uh, that shaped me and matured me at a very young age. And it was interesting because I was actually speaking with a factory Volkswagen team the other day, and he happened to have a brother on the autism spectrum. And my father was asking him if he wanted to see any videos of me racing and whatnot. And he simply looked back at us and said, I understand you have a brother on the autism spectrum. I know what it was like to be raised in those environments. I know what it is like to be under high stress environments and to have to go through and be raised in that, in that type of environment. And he simply said to me that he doesn't need to see anything, that he knows that I'm capable of doing anything if I was capable of being raised with an autism, uh, a brother on the autism spectrum and coming out so successful. Um, so it was, like I said, a very difficult environment. He is now matured and he's become a really great young man. He's 22 years old, has a job, lives in a group home and is about ready to get uh, engaged actually. Wow. So some very exciting things going on for him. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I really love the kinship that it seems that siblings have when they meet each other. There, there is, just as you were describing, a moment, I've seen this happen before, where they say, oh, you get it. You get what it was like. Uh, as a parent on the outside, what I tend to notice is that I'm sure it's a difficult childhood, but I have to say that you siblings make the most incredible adults. Yes, it, it most definitely shapes you like no other, and uh, and I can directly attribute a lot of characteristics and personality traits that I have um, that are directly as a result of my brother, um, all being good. And then you obviously have those other ones that are just that have shaped me in interesting ways that we're all just attempting to overcome. As it was yet again a very difficult and stressful environment that brings out different things about yourself that you didn't know but all moving towards a greater purpose and a greater meaning. Jason, if there was one thing you could say to parents that you wish that they would understand so that they could get through this difficult time and help the siblings, what do you think you would say? To the parents? Yes, um, so they can make it easier for the siblings, that they can lighten the load just even a little bit. What could they do? Well, 
one thing that I'm doing with my racing platform is I'm also going to be working on expanding the respite services and mm -hmm. providing that to more families. And I can personally testify as to how important it is to have that, I mean, to be quite blunt, like the break yeah. from the autism. Because of this stressful environment that's created, it's such a big deal when you're able to get that little bit of a breather, especially being a sibling that's constantly around it. Um, and that was the most important thing for me. So I would just suggest the parents to be reaching out to their local chapters and organizations and whatever services they can find, because that really does make a big difference for those siblings. Okay, great. And your mother, Catherine Purple Cherry, we were talking about what a great name that is, Purple Cherry. I absolutely love it. Uh, she's been very involved with the Autism Society of America. And, uh, and so she uh, obviously is somebody who knows a little bit about those services and being affiliate and how important it is for parents to reach out to those affiliates. And and Jason, was that something that, that you found when when your family, when your mom was involved with ASA, was that something that yes, was helpful yes. for it trickle to you? Out. We're losing. Yes, you a little it, bit. it most definitely was. It, it helped. It helped. Uh, okay, it's probably because of the poor connection in this hotel. I apologize. No, uh, no, you it's not me? your fault. Yeah, we we got you now. Okay. Um, Yes, I can I can tell you that the connections with the ASA have helped us reach out to the different techs. Um, I was raised, when I was a child, I mean, we had a tech in our house five, six days out of the week that was supporting my brother. And all those things were very important for us as a family to give us the break. And my mother being with ASA helped form those connections and get things moving at a quicker pace and just to, to help provide us with that support. Well, you have to give her our best. But before yes. we leave you, Jason, I want you to talk about uh, this race on the first and how people can be involved and what you want them to know, how you're using your racing to be able to help people. Great. Okay. Um, so August 1st, the 3rd, I'll be at Mid-Ohio, which is in Lexington, Ohio. It's a really big racetrack. We're going to be running with a lot of big teams. We're going to be with IndyCar, Indy Light, Trans Am, and the Pirelli World Challenge Series, which I'm associated with. And what I do when I go to the racetracks is I reach out to the local chapters or vice versa. They reach out to me. You can find me through Facebook, Jason Cherry Professional Race Car Driver, or through my website, which is www.jasoncherryracing.com. And um, I organize an event where I get these children and families at the track. And all the other teams are very supportive, supportive of me and fully aware of what I'm doing with the ASA. And so I bring these children to the track, and I host them, and I walk them around the paddock area. And I just have a fun a fun day with them. And it's really cool to see how they react around the motorsports because this is the professional series that I'm at. Um, so I would say just work with your local chapters. If you're in the Ohio area, then reach out to them, as I've already reached out to them, um, the specific affiliates. And uh, get in contact with me, and I'll be more than happy to bring everyone at the track. Okay. We can host anyone and everyone. Wonderful. And I imagine they could bring their siblings, too. Yes, they can. Siblings, okay. parents, friends, anybody that has been affected or has any sort of connections with autism is more than welcome to come. Wonderful. Now, you're there at the conference this week. I've seen pictures of you on Facebook, taking pictures, being at the ASA booth and, and taking pictures. Are you there the whole rest of the weekend through Saturday? Yes. Yes, I will be. So I'll be set up at the ASA booth, like you said. If anybody is listening to this and is going to be there, then uh, please stop on by, and I'll be there with my helmet and talking about my racing and racing career. And I understand it's your birthday this week. It, my birthday was yesterday. I started off the day traveling in an airport at about 4 in the morning to get up to Indy. 
So it was a long day for me, but it was fun. And the uh, the board members treated me out to a nice dinner last night, which was very kind of them. And turned 18, which is a big deal. But you know, it's just like any other year, and I'm glad I'm here to to be a part of the. Uh, convention. Well, a very happy 18th birthday. What a huge big deal. And thank you for sharing that with the autism community and for being what a, a wonderful example for our parents that are watching that are concerned about their siblings. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how they grow up. Could you could you love it anymore? Uh, Jason, we, we think you're remarkable. We're going to be rooting for you on August 1st and all your future races. We think what you're doing is incredible. Thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. Well, have a great rest of the week there. And uh, we're going to say goodbye now because in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Temple Grandin. But thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. What an amazing and articulate and responsible and kind young man. And I, and he is remarkable all on his own, but I, I will tell you that all the siblings that I meet, that once they're adults, this, this seems to be the thread that connects them all together. So I hope that those of you who have multiple children see that and, and know that while of course it's hard and it's hard on the siblings, uh, they grow up to be amazing really responsible, kind, considerate, and they understand hard work too. So uh, those are not bad things to have. Now we are uh, in just a couple of moments. Normally we would be ending the show right now, but instead we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back live with Temple, Dr. Temple Grandin. We have had her on the show many times before and have had the opportunity to interview her, but we've never been live with her before. You guys have written in some questions. We pro we're going to be with her for a half an hour. We hope that you'll continue to write in questions. Uh, so stick with us. The excitement just grows and grows. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, I'm Ryan with Autism Research Group. We study ways to improve the lives of kids with autism. One of those ways is teaching safety skills, such as what to do if they get lost. We hit the streets to find out if anybody knows the correct answer on how to teach a kid what to do if they get lost. You're teaching a child. What to do if they get lost. Yeah, you're trying to okay. make them independent so they have the skills. Gotcha, okay. Well, give them a compass. Code name's good idea, Centurion. We always have this whistle. Um. Oh, I'd also tell the kid, I tell the kid, don't get scared. It's all, you're gonna be all right, man. This is just the world. You're, this is planet Earth. You're at home here. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're at home. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're home. This guy's a genius. With that flawless logic, he just solved our homeless problem. And as for the unique sounding whistle, although very cool, it'll probably only work if you're in close proximity. And a compass. I have her call me. Yeah, she doesn't have a phone. Parents are like, you're too young, you don't need a phone. Establish some sort of like meeting place. What if they can't find a meeting place? Because sometimes mm. the kids get nervous when they get lost. Yeah. So like a backup plan. Well, like well, plan B. Yeah, I don't know. No, not really. Let them go and find a new kid. Or <laughs> yeah, I've got a different one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not much you can do. There is you, stuff like, you can do. Like... That's right, there is stuff you can do. In 2012, myself, along with my colleagues, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox and Dr. Adele Nadowski, published a study in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis on teaching kids what to do when they get lost. The study demonstrated how three simple things, rules, 
role-playing, and praise were effective in establishing these help-seeking behaviors. The benefit of this method is it doesn't require the child to have a cell phone or to have to locate a meeting place, which might be difficult if they're in a place like Disneyland. So once again, our method included rules, role-playing, and praise. Let's head back outside and learn about some of these rules. They should yell out loud. Can't find my mom, my mom, help me. Maybe yell out and scream for help. All right, scream really loud. Right. And if that doesn't work, then... I don't know. Well, they could seek help from someone. Find an adult. Yeah, go to a vendor, you know, and say I'm lost. Find an adult, like a police officer, or a fireman, or an employee in the store, and tell them, and maybe they can help you contact your parent. It really is that simple. You don't need to get your kid a cell phone. You don't need to establish a meeting place that they might not be able to find when they're lost and panicking. And you definitely don't need to give them a compass. All your kid has to do is three things. First, yell mom or dad real loud. Two, if that doesn't work, find an employee, and then third, tell the employee they're lost. If they can't locate an employee, then tell them to find a mother with children, because that's probably the safest person to approach. I'm not saying that most men are predators, but most predators are men. That is a fact. I've read it in a fortune cookie. All right, so you've gone over the rules with your kid, and you've quizzed them, and they're able to tell you the correct responses so they understand the rules, but is that enough? How do you know they're going to perform correctly in a real-world setting? You need to get out there and find out if they can actually do it. So they'd go over the rules and tell them, like, do this, do that, but how would you know if they actually knew what to do? If you wanted to shoot a basketball, and I just told you, oh, when you shoot a basketball, do this, this, and this. I never, never practiced. You never practiced? Yeah, so it doesn't matter how many times we go over the rules or how well you can repeat them back to me, it's not going to change until you get on the court and practice. Maybe do, uh, like, a, you know, a little skit with them. Like a Kinda role play? Role like. play, yeah. Your child, you're lost in the toy aisle. Okay. What do you do? I'm an attendant walking around. <laughs> I'm lost, I don't know where my mom is. And then once you practice, you just like praise them, give them feedback, like good job, you did it. Yes, this woman wins the prize for best comment. She pointed out the most important part of learning reinforcement. Now, in our study, we used praise, but for your kid, you might have to use something else. You might have to buy them a treat, a toy, take them to their favorite restaurant where they can eat unhealthy food and run around and climb through plastic tunnels that have the unmistakable scent of urine, and then play games spending $20 to get a plastic little spider ring that they will eventually lose in the ball pit. The point is, you need to reward your child for correctly demonstrating what you've been teaching them. Okay, I'm gonna call her. Hello, your child, Ryan. <laughs> so you tested it out in the store <laughs> to make sure I knew it. I had the rules, we role played it, and you made sure I knew it, and then like you said, good job, and all that. Now we're good to go. Good to go. All right. Done? High five right there. Yeah. So there you have it. Give your child the rules, get out there and practice, and reward your child for responding correctly. For more information, please visit us online at autismresearchgroup.org. I'm Ryan Bergstrom. Thanks for watching. Yes, ding. No. <laughs> yes, this woman wins the first. Yes, this woman. Yes, this woman wins the best. Yes, this woman wins the first place. Yes, this woman with why can't I say woman? Yes, this woman wins what's the line? Yes! 
Welcome back to Autism Live. Normally we are not on the air at this time. We would have just finished the show, but we are making an exception today because we have an exceptional guest who's going to be joining us. I'm here with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox live in the studio, and he is the head of research and development at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And I've asked him to stay with me because joining us via Skype right now live is the wonderful Dr. Temple Grandin. And of course, those of you who are watching are probably very familiar with her. She is a hero in our community. Uh, she is a, a wonderful author and speaker and advocate. Temple, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's great to be here. Now, you are in Indianapolis right now. You just this morning gave your keynote speech at the Autism Society of America's annual conference, and I heard that it was incredible, that it was absolutely life-changing, and I'm, I'm just so thrilled that you're willing to take the time to be with us now. We've asked some of our viewers, who are largely parents, to write in some questions for you, and I'm going to start with one uh, that's about a six-year-old. The mom writes in and says uh, he's about to be six years old, excuse me, my, my almost six-year-old son has an interest in storms and weather, specifically tornadoes. We're at the tip of Tornado Alley, so it's not unlikely to have a threat, but so far he's never been in immediate danger. Although it seems to be a special interest, it sometimes causes a lot of anxiety and irrational fears. For example, he has claimed to be the only one who can see invisible tornadoes approaching even when they are factually not signs or warnings of danger. I try to support him in learning about storms, hoping the more he learns, the less anxiety he will have. Do you have any thoughts on where to go with this and if I'm headed in the right direction? Well, kids oftentimes have irrational fears. Um, my irrational fear at six was Mr. Woolworth, the black cement mixer drama. And Mr. Woolworth lived under the bed, and I was afraid that if I put my foot over the bed, he'd roll out and suck me up. Wow. Well, that just didn't make any sense. And when I was also that age, they were building a new addition on our house, and they had this big circular saw in their shed, and I somehow worried the blade might come up through the floor. But then I ended up working in the, with the building trades. So something that, you know, it gets a little older, learn about storms, that's probably, probably a good thing, and some of the precautions that you can take against storms. But when I was his age, I had, you know, these were uh, the Mr. Woolworth, a cement mixer drum, a black... One rather strange fear. I certainly don't have that now. Okay. And we did lots of things with cement mixers on my construction projects. And and so do you do think it's a good idea for her to encourage learning more about them? If you do it the right way, like precautions you can take during a storm, for example, like where you would go if there, you know, a tornado might be coming. Uh, I used to be when I was older, scarplane high school we had to make an emergency landing and go down the slides and i was a white knuckle flyer all through college and what helped me it was how airplanes fly okay and we're having a little bit of sticking um i think if temple if you can hear me and if john if you can hear me there we're going to take a short break and see if we can um strengthen the signal a little bit because we're just having a little I bit don't of know how to strengthen the signal but well emily emily's going to try uh, just we'll just calling you back so because we want to be able to hear all of this because this right. is good information so we're going to uh, go j very quickly to a break and we're going to come back we're going to try calling again see if we can get a little bit better signal everybody okay. keep your fingers crossed to the Skype gods <laughs> Skype is our friend Skype is our friend all right we'll be right, right back after take, this I'm message. power my phone 
What is autism? 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 I've been asking myself that for a very, very long time. Um, let me think about that one. <laughs> trying to, uh, just, uh... Um... Oh man, that's a great one. Yes. Uh, autism. Uh, autism is a neurological disorder that affects many of our kids in different ways. It's a learning disability that affects the cognitive functions of the brain. A lot of people have the misconception that it's a disability, and it's really not. I look at it as like a special gift. When one person thinks differently from another, it's an opportunity for everyone to learn to understand someone that's a little different than them. Autism is the ability to educate. They're given so much talent in different areas. To me, autism means a chance to be with and be around people you really care about. Autism is beautiful. It's a way of seeing the world differently. It's always unique, totally intelligent, and sometimes mysterious. Happiness that, that, that comes out of my um, son's um, hard work. It's a movement. Unpredictable. That's right. Awesome. Love. The field I want to work in. Laughter. Fun. Joy. Autism is beautiful to me. I want you to remember these three words. There is hope. Welcome back to Autism Live. We have with us right now via Skype, Temple Grandin, and here in the studio we have Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. We're talking with Temple Grandin. She is in Indianapolis. She earlier this morning gave her keynote speech at her keynote address at the Autism Society of America, and it was, it just brought the house down. So we're so thrilled to have this time with her. We were having a little bit of technical difficulty. Before we left Temple, you were talking about when you were in high school and, and talking about uh, your fear of airplanes um, and so if you'd like to pick that up there where we were talking about that and let us know what you were saying I got a lot of anxiety when I got into puberty I started having a lot of anxiety and when I was a senior in high school I was in an airplane it's like my third flight in my life and I had to make an emergency they made an emergency landing and we went down the slides so all through college I was terrified of airplanes and one of the things that helped me to get over that was learning more about how airplanes worked. Because the pilot would put the landing gear down and I was sure the bottom of the plane was falling out. You know, when you learn more about something, then it makes it a whole lot scary, a lot less scary. It makes it a whole lot less scary. And that's something that's worked well with people that have elevator phobias. And they start learning about the mechanisms that the elevator has that will prevent it from crashing down the shaft. I, I, I kind of have some elevator phobias. I think I'm going to go learn how they work. I love that advice, Temple. That's really wonderful. Now, somebody else wants to know, were you aware that you were different or unique? Uh, and then they have additionally want to know, have you had visual stims? And what is the thought process behind those stims? I did not do visual stims. Most of my sensory problems were touch sensitivity, especially scratchy clothes, and problems with loud noise. Uh, you know, autism sensory problems are extremely variable, but I've read accounts in the literature like Tito's, How Can I Talk of Donna Williams' book, uh, Somebody Somewhere, where she describes almost kind of a Picasso-like vision where visual images uh, break up. There's a problem in the circuits that assemble the image file on the back of the brain, 
And some people have those problems. I helped with the um, Erlen colored lenses, you know, different pale colored glasses. I know a lot of people that have gone down to the local sunglass store, picked out some light lavenders or light tans or some light uh, pinks, and it's helped them with reading because the print stops jiggling on the page. But again, some will have a visual problem, others do not have it. These things are extremely variable. Well, I'm curious, Temple, because I, I remember talking to you once before and you talked about um, two things that you really did enjoy doing when you were young, spinning a metal plate on your bed and letting sand fall through your fingers. And I remember asking you about what it was uh, that why you wanted to do that so much and maybe you could talk to us about what is the thought process behind when you're when there's something that you want to do um, what what was it about spinning the plate and what was it about the sand I would have assumed it was visual but now I'm wondering if it wasn't well I love to watch visual things people that have problems with the visual system avoid visually stimulating things I actually liked them my favorite toys were airplanes and kites things that you know were visually interesting to look at I loved flags and when I uh, dribbled the sand through my hands I like to study every little rock you know sort of like a scientist with a microscope and when I spun this brass plate that covered up a bolt that held the bed frame together I would spin it at different speeds then see how many times it would rotate and how it would stop rotating it was almost sort of like a scientist uh, testing it looking at every different way I could spin it wow it's always so wonderful us to hear your perspective on things because that wouldn't have occurred to me so i i appreciate as a parent knowing that um okay i want to go on to somebody wants to know what was your favorite horse of all time and they want to know why that particular horse was your favorite well when i was in high school a horse i rode all the time i really liked was uh Bay Lady, she's brown with black mane and tail. I showed her in shows, spent a lot of time getting her ready for shows. And this brings up an important thing, social interaction through shared specialized interests. The only place I was not bullied and teased in high school was specialized interests, horseback riding, electronics lab, and rocket club. Okay. Wonderful, and so w was one of those your favorite or did you like those all equally? Well, horses when I was in high school was my absolute big favorite, but I also really liked the, the science stuff, too. I remember one really cool, visually stimulating project we did, took great big audio speakers, and we stretched a rubber membrane across those speakers, and then we glued pieces of broken mirror to it. And when you play the music, you reflect the light off of it, and it makes patterns on the wall or on the ceiling. Very cool, you know, 60s science project, still a cool thing to do today to um, make sound waves visual. Very simple, very inexpensive. Wonderful, it sounds really exciting. Uh, another question that we've got here, somebody wants to know, are there any tips you can give me when I take my son to the local trampoline park? My son has a trampoline in his room and uses it for hours. He's a sensory seeker. Uh, uh, the whistles, loud kids, and music are overwhelming for him. He blocks out sound by covering his ears and making loud noises, which I can handle, but the other kids and the parents do stare. So he can do the trampoline at home, but what, she'd like to take him and socialize at the trampoline park, but there's too much sensory going on for him there. What would you advise? 
Well, there's a new treatment that's just been published. There's a paper out on the internet. It's a refereed evidence-based journal article, and it's called Environmental Enrichment is an Effective Treatment for Autism. Use keywords on Google, Environmental Enrichment Autism. Use those three keywords. And the principle of this method is it's based on stimulating two senses at once, and the foundation of it is the so-called primitive senses of smell, touch and balance like you might be smelling lavender while uh, touching some sandpaper or you're rubbing the kids back and you're smelling another smell another basic principle is always changing the stimuli and and there's a therapy uh, eight different aromatherapies rotating those uh, but always stimulating two senses the paper is a free download and I had one parent write to me that they tried some of these things and it helped their daughter tolerate a really noisy, awful classroom that her class had just been moved into. Fascinating. And so tell me the, again the name of it, Temple. The title of the paper is Environmental Enrichment okay. is an Effective Treatment for Autism. Okay, great. And cannot remember the title. Three keywords, Environmental Enrichment Autism. Okay, great. I'm going to move on to the next question here. If your child is a visual and auditory learner and has mastered language arts, but math is like he cannot master, what do you do? What approach is best to help him? Getting stuck on multiplication and not moving past it is hard. Okay, I, my, I hit the wall at algebra. And the mistake that was made in my math education was not going on to geometry. And the only way I got through college is, thank goodness, in 67, Algebra was not the required course then, it was finite math. I think with something like multiplication, I actually had no problem with that. Uh, try making it more concrete. One of the things that helped me was to understand that multiplication is a form of adding. So you might want to take a whole lot of pennies and make sure you only use pennies. Let's say five times six. We'll lay out your grid. Five pennies across, six pennies up, and you lay out 30 pennies. And then you start to get the idea that it's actually a form of adding. And then I also just memorized my old-fashioned multiplication tables. Wonderful. You know, we recently had your mom on, on the show, and it was such a delight uh, to talk with your mom. And she has so many wonderful things to say about you and, and stories to share. She's just a, a wonderful, wonderful resource. So is that the way your mom did it with you? She just worked on the rote memorization, or was she? did she get out pennies? No, well, I, someone at some point, I think maybe the teacher at school did the pennies, but they did some of those things with me. Another thing, my mother had a really good sense of just how much to stretch me and push me. There's a tendency for these kids to get over-sheltered. They're not learning how to shake hands. And when I was a young child around seven or eight, I had to be party hostess at my mother's parties, and I loved it because I got to greet all the grown-ups, practice my grown-up skills, saying, you know, please and thank you, and serve them the snacks. And I need to do those simple things, teach these skills. Absolutely. We've got a question from a 16-year-old on the spectrum who wants to know if you have any advice. He would like very much to meet a girl and have a girlfriend and is overwhelmed with how to figure out how to do that. I think he's most likely to meet a girlfriend through a shared interest. It could be robotics. It could be computers. It could be uh, working in theater on the school play music, band, an art club, get involved with the shared interests because some of the best marriages are where there's a shared 
Then for a book that I did with Sean Barron called The Unwritten Social Rules, he might find that um, really helpful, but uh, approach it through this route. Okay, wonderful. We've got somebody who wants to know if you are still teaching and how long you plan on continue teaching. I still am teaching. I plan to keep teaching until I can no longer walk or do anything anymore. And I'm happy to say that one of my other colleagues at Colorado State University, who's 10 years older, is now teaching quarter time at two different universities. And he's teaching, and he's teaching the um, introductory, um, some of the introductory animal science classes. Okay, uh, somebody, a parent wants to know, what is the best advice you can give young women when they're feeling uh, as if, uh, she says that uh, there's so many boys who have autism and our girls feel alone. Did you feel that way? And w what advice do you give to our girls on the spectrum? Well, when I was a teenager, I was more worried about teasing and bullying. And, uh, and when I was starting out in my business, the worst thing was all the, you know, discrimination against girls. I mean, I was going into a man's industry. You know, that was not an easy thing. The HBO movie showed a lot of that stuff, and the movie did show that accurately. I, you know, sometimes I think there gets to be too much emphasis on the autism. Because one of the things that really helped me was getting interested in something I could turn into a career. I get asked, how did I get interested in cattle? I was exposed to them when I was 15. That was going out to my aunt's ranch. I almost didn't go to my aunt's ranch. My mother gave me a choice. She can say, well, you can go for a week, and if you don't like it, you can come back, or you can stay all summer. I got out there, and I loved it. She wasn't going to let not going at all be the choice. There's a choice, but not going wasn't going to be one of the choices. I love that. So smart. Okay, I've got a long question here. I've seen many different resources claiming anywhere between 60 to 93% of communication is nonverbal communication. Is there a reliable study you can cite to show this? The school and state offices keep referring to communication as verbal language. I have had to constantly challenge the incorrect assumption that because my child has a lot of verbal verbal language, he has no communication deficits. Though he has so many, even his emotional vocabulary and abstract language is lagging as well as body language, eye contact, gestures, behavior challenges due to miscommunication, etc. I am now in the process of challenging the state for denial of funding and would like to be as articulate as I can for this and for future advocacy. So is there anything that you're aware of, Temple, that they, that they can point to that shows that nonverbal communication is very important? and a deficit in that needs to be addressed? Well, I had to learn all that stuff, you know, by, you know, it's like coaching an actor in a play. You know, things that are instinctual for most people are not instinctual for me. I had to learn if somebody crosses their arms like this at a project meeting, that they're probably not too receptive to what I had to say to them. Or someone's rolling their eyes. Uh, I had to learn what those things uh, uh, meant. And some of the most helpful things for me were some of the uh, the first person accounts you know that I read and there's a lot of those out there. I uh, yeah, nonverbal communication is really important. And when I was younger, phone, old-fashioned voice phone, was my favorite way of communicating because I came across a lot. I was much more normal-like and less weird on the phone because they didn't see my mannerisms. We weren't on, didn't have Skype when I was <laughs> when my business started. Old-fashioned voice phone, loved it. Absolutely. And now texting is such a thing. Do you feel like texting is something that helps us communicate or hinders communication? I think it's hindering communication to a certain amount because I've talked to a lot of um, uh, people that hire a lot of people at various businesses. And they say, well, these young people don't know how to communicate. And I went to an interesting talk at a business meeting.
learning that uh, today's teenagers have a prolonged adolescence, a shortened childhood, prolonged adolescence. And it's going to take longer for them to grow up and learn some of the communication things they need to learn at, at work. Also, I want to talk about the importance of learning work skills. That needs to start at 12 years old. When I was 13 years old, mother set me up a sewing job two afternoons a week. When I was 15, I cleaned eight horse stalls every day. When I was in college, I did career-relevant internships, like working in a research lab one summer. We've got to set these things up. Short circuit that interview process. You got to grease the skids in the background and just get them into these jobs. I love tell that. Tell the boss it's going to take take longer to train them, but they'll be really good when you get them trained. Wonderful. And you know, Dr. Grandin, we have with us in the studio uh, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, who is the director of the Autism Research Group. They're an organization that does research about things having to do with behavior that can actually help parents who are treating a child right now. And one of the things they frequently do is they ask parents, what would you like to see uh, research done on? I'm wondering for you, is there anything that's on your w wish list of what research should be done? I think some of the most important research is on sensory, because sensory problems vary from being, being very, very debilitating and, and stop people from participating in normal activities. In fact, in my new book, The Autistic Brain, got a big extensive section on uh, sensory issues, but that would be one of my top priority things. And we need to work on sensory subtyping. Some kids have visual problems. Well, and the visual problems don't tend to be the artists and the industrial designers because their brains pixelate in the images. You know, then you've got um, people with all the sound sensitivity issues or the taste sensitivity, but start um, looking at this not just as autism, but okay, this person has problems with the fluorescent lights, visual problems, somebody else's sound sensitivity, and there has been some research that shows that the loud noises actually turn on the fear center. Uh -huh. yep, I can relate to that, but we need to be doing some sensory subgrouping and then figuring out how to treat these things. Yeah, I love that, Dr. Grandin, that, that you're pointing that out because we've definitely, you know, in your typical ABA program, we treat all of these kids, right? And uh, and we're all kind of aware of these sensory issues, but honestly, they're just not dealt with to a sufficient degree. And so you'll see, you know, you'll ask a child to do some kind of learning task, and you know, for the same task that seems pretty reasonable to you or me, uh, you know, five different kids on the spectrum might have five completely different reactions to that task, especially if it involves loud noises or if it's in a in a loud class with too many visual distractions or or if the materials that you're using are, are too strange of a texture or rice or sand or something for the child who's who's afraid of textured uh, materials touching their hands um, and and so it kind of gets swept under the rug right if we don't if we don't actually address those things individually well, we need so. to be doing this and I was very excited about this environmental enrichment method because this paper uses all easy things you don't have to buy a lot of fancy equipment i mean they were using things like sandpaper carpet uh, you know some aromatherapy stuff on uh, uh, music cd on classical music uh, just simple things warm and cold spoons for for touch and and, and temperature um, stimulation just very very simple things fascinating i'm wondering dr grandin you you mentioned that loud noises were something that were frightening to you what do you think helped you to get to the point where you could manage that well let the child control the noise okay one of the worst is microphone feedback mm. okay if the child the handheld wireless mic he starts to walk up to the speaker and just when he goes he can back off. 
where he controls it. He can like turn that. it on and he can stop it. That's one of the things. Or let's say the kid can't tolerate going to the big supermarket because it's too noisy. Well, you let him control how much big supermarket he has to tolerate. And then when he can't stand it, he can give you a signal and you'll take him out. In other words, give the child control of the thing he finds totally nasty. And then sometimes that can help desensitize it. Well, I, we're, we're running out of time with you, Dr. Grandin, but I, I wanted to take just one last minute at the end. You were, you're there at the conference for the Autism Society of America. You gave the keynote speech this morning. They're having, they've got a lineup of really incredible, incredible things for people to participate in this week. And I, I wondered if you could speak to why, I know you're so busy, but you made the time to go to this conference. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about the Autism Society of America and why you felt it was really important to be there with those folks this morning well the autism society of america has a lot of chapters and affiliates that get out and communicate with a lot of people another big message that i talked about was build on strengths some kids are visual thinkers you know an artistic kind of career would be where they would want to go that my ability in art showed up when i was in third and fourth grade other little kids are going to be mathematicians they could go into the computer programming field. We gotta work on building strengths. Other kids are writers. And some people are gonna think I'm just an old fogey when I talk about video games. But I'm seeing way too many kids getting so addicted to video games, they're not going anywhere. I'm not, I'm not suggesting banning them, but we need to limit that to an hour a day. Well, and I appreciate that advice. The first time that I met you, you told me about Khan Academy and suggested that I get my son started in Khan Academy. And this summer, he's been taking a class on Khan Academy to learn JavaScript so that he can animate things on the computer. And he's 11 years old, and it's really cool. been it's been transformative. So I have to thank you, and I want you to know that I'm I'm letting others know about that. Your great advice about Khan Academy. It's free, and and it's been a wonderful, wonderful resource. Well, that's absolutely wonderful that they're teaching JavaScript. That's a really important thing to learn. We've got to start figuring out how to use these free tools to give people skills they're going to need for jobs. Because one thing about the computer science field is you show employers the right portfolio, you're going to get hired. That's and right. how did I sell cattle jobs? I showed off portfolios of my work, my drawings, my photos. Now that you find, put it on your phone. One thing that just drives me crazy is somebody will, this kid will say, I got great drawing skills. Or I know how to do all this programming stuff. I said, do you have it on your phone? Because you never know where you're going to meet the person that can open the door. Like Good point. On a, the bus stop at the supermarket on an airplane. You never know. Love it. As always, Dr. Grannon, you shed such a light in a place that we're all looking to shed some light. We thank you so much for your time uh, and for being the outspoken advocate that you are for our entire community. Well, I want to see people get out and be successful. And I also want to emphasize the DSM changes have made autism into this huge broad spectrum, going all the way from people that be working at Silicon Valley, Einstein, who had no language till age three, to somebody that remains nonverbal with a lot more severe handicaps. And it's difficult lots of times for teachers to shift gears between those different levels. I agree. That's true. I agree. Well, we thank you so much. We know that you've got a lot to do today and that you're still at that conference, the Autism Society of America. I want to encourage people that if they're in the area, they should be there at the conference. Uh, but thank you so much for being a part of the show today. We will let you get back to what you're doing, but thank you for being with us. 
Uh, it was great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. And so that was Dr. Temple Grandin, who has been uh, talking with us for the last half hour. Isn't she just amazing? Yeah, she's amazing. She was, she was such an inspiration, I think, to the whole community. I just, I just can't get enough of her. And I, I know I talked to a couple of people this morning who had just come from the keynote, and they were have articulate people who were having trouble finding the words to say. And ultimately, they just said this was life changing. This was just life changing. This, I'm so glad to be alive today and be here and hear her speak. I'm sorry, I missed it. Well, I. You know, we didn't get to see it today, but I have had the opportunity to hear her speak, and, and it's amazing. If you get the opportunity to meet her in person, there's just nothing like it. Uh, I think a lot of times in life you build up an expectation of somebody and who they are and what they're like, and often they can't live up to it, right? She does. She exceeds she really it, you does, guys. Yeah. She really does. It's re really amazing. So I thank you for being here and sharing that with us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I really well, appreciate it. Uh, it's a, a treat to be able to share it. And I'm glad that you guys were all with us and wrote in so many wonderful questions. I know we didn't get to all of them, and I apologize, but we got to as many of them as we possibly could in the half hour that we had her. And, you know, she's always willing to come back other times. Sometimes we don't get a whole lot of notice of when she's available, but, you know, she's Temple Grandin. You take her when you can have her. That's right. So, uh, in any case, uh, we, thank you for sticking around for this extended portion of the show. We will be back on Tuesday. We've got a really exciting exciting week of shows with you on Tuesday. We're going to be talking a lot about safety in light of some of the things that, that have been happening, some of the things that we've learned about safety and about finding our kids when they go missing and what we all need to be doing to strengthening that. So an array of wonderful guests, and you're going to be with us next week. Uh, so that will be thrilling, and we have Dr. Doreen Grampche back with us next week, too. So make sure you're here with us on Tuesday. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and on Twitter over the weekend. Until Tuesday, please give your kiddos a hug from me. Bye-bye for now.